kill you. Yeah, what's wrong with the beer we got? gentlemen and welcome to the anti-nanny podcast as is traditional we are going to begin this evening with the cosa update uh good evening ladies and gentlemen and welcome to the cosa update for the week of 4 28 2017 my name is jan johnson i'm a member of the cosa board and with me is alex clark alex clark what is your actual title alex (laughs) Um, I, I have adopted executive director. Oh, right. Okay. I feel like that, that rolls off the tongue a lot better. I, okay. I, CEO <laughs> or executive director is appropriate. Okay. All right. But, um, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, welcome Alex Clark, the director of, uh, executive, executive. director, executive, executive director. director of Kassan. Yeah. Um, so I had to get that out of the way because new people are listening to the show, but we do this every week. So what's new and exciting this week, Alex? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I spent the entire day in New York City yesterday okay. um, at, at City Hall. Uh, there was a, a Committee on Health hearing regarding a package of ordinances that were uh, introduced, I guess, a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And um, they predominantly deal with uh, other tobacco and um, and cigarette sales okay. in the city. Um, actually, it's I'm getting confused now between <clears throat> San Francisco and New York City, which says a lot. Um, it's a there's a tobacco products definition in in, in both cities and it's pretty um, similar uh well the tobacco products definition in san francisco includes vapor products okay uh, it does not include vapor products in new york that's okay. where i'm getting tripped up but um so I, anyway, I'm, I'm going to confuse everybody if I keep trying to work this out. But okay. um, it suffice it to say, um, there are a, a couple of bills that 
sort of you know vaping gets caught up in because okay. of things like a smoke the smoking definition and um you know new york's indoor clean air law right. um, there are uh, ordinances that will prohibit smoking in uh, common areas of um i guess city-owned housing um and uh, uh there was something about um there's a bill that would I, I think require landlords to uh, uh, develop some sort of smoke-free policy for their uh, for their buildings. Um, which, if you're not familiar with New York, I mean, everybody lives in an apartment, or you know, I guess the fancy apartments are called condos, uh, or just straight-up luxury apartments. Um, <clears throat> but you know, smoking is uh, vaping is included in smoking unless I guess they make a distinction. But uh, it's kind of hard to do that when the law, you know, when there's a law, um, it's also ridiculous to do it because you know no one's really going to know that yeah. you're vaping. Um, so, <clears throat> but the most important thing, you know, what what we were there to oppose, uh, it's actually. I think there were four ordinances that I had identified that that Kassaw would would have just either straight up op opposition to or uh, otherwise some concerns uh, and specific recommendations. And um, the one bill, the 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 one that we're that we're really concerned about is um, Intro uh, fifteen thirty two. Okay. And this is the this is the ordinance that would set a licensing cap oh, yes. on the number of e-cigarette retail licenses that the city would issue. Yes. And so it does this by saying, you know, once this becomes law, <clears throat> everybody has 90 days to apply for this e-cigarette retailer license. And after that 90 days, no more licenses will be issued. Right. Um, and then selling your business is also incredibly difficult selling that license is 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 very difficult um and this is not i i'm, I'm not fully versed on the, the law in new york city and how this works it's it seems to me a bit onerous but um there is a, a um a section in the new york city administrative code that um you know requires and this is for certain regulated um, regulated industries like alcohol, tobacco. <clears throat> I assume there's some other stuff in there that, that they would require this for. But, um, you know, if you're going to, wh whoever's going to take over a business and you're going to purchase 10% or more of, of that business, you, mm -hmm. you, uh, I, 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 I can't exactly, I don't know. It's, it's complicated, okay. <laughs> but it, it is a complicated process and it, it makes selling the license very difficult. And right. not only that, but the license is for that location and that business only. Right. So, you know, if, if, you know, Joe blows vapor shop is on, you know, one, two, three fake street in Brooklyn. <laughs> and that turns out to be kind of a crappy location. And the next owner comes along and says, well, I've got a better location. I just need a license. Mm -hmm. He's out of luck because yeah. the license is only good for that one, two, three fake street. Right. And he can't apply for a new license in a different location. So, 
um, it, it, it actually, and you know, it devalues, I mean, auto, right away, it automatically devalues the license yeah. um, and, and, and can have a really bad impact on the businesses. And mm-hmm. from our perspective, from the consumer perspective, right. it, it stops the, the growth of, of, of vapor shops in New York City. And um, there was actually, um, there was Spike and um, Cheryl Richter um, right. were there from the New York State Vapor Association and mm-hmm. they brought some statistics. And I think there's like 160 vapor shops in the new york city in in new york city Mm -hmm. and that's compared to i think uh close to nine thousand cigarette retailers wow just let that sink in um so um (laughs) or i maybe it was 200 i can't remember how many it's it but it's not many it's you know for a city with um you know something like eight million residents Right. Uh, 900,000 of which are smokers, mm-hmm. um, you know, a couple hundred vape shops really isn't that much. And sure. so, you know, right out of the gate, uh, vapor shops are, are poorly represented compared mm-hmm. to all of the, you know, bodegas and gas stations and grocery stores and sure. Walgreens and Rite Aids and Dwayne Reeds that you can go to and get a pack of cigarettes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, uh, and you know the 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 points that uh, I was arguing was you know denying people, limiting people's access to vapor shops is denying them access to a um, a peer to peer support network that's developed mm-hmm. around the vape shop, and yeah. and that's um, that that has a I think a pretty that will have a devastating effect on. Uh, people's ability to to get you know to, to completely transition to a smoke-free product um, and also for some people to to stick with it so um, I, I hope that uh, and by the time I, I was like I was on the last panel which so just to give you some you know idea <clears throat> um, you know this meeting started this hearing started at, at 10 a.m. Mm-hmm. And I didn't sit on the panel until close to four o'clock. Wow. Um, and there's no, there's no lunch break. You know, you can get up and go to the bathroom. You, mean, you can get up and leave if you want, right. but you know, you got to go in and out of security and. Yeah. Um, Sounds fun. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. Um, and, you know, some of the usual suspects were there, some names that I recognize from, um, you know, heart, cancer, tobacco-free kids the body um, parts is groups <laughs> yeah the body parts um the body parts gang was there and um there was also a, a new york <clears throat> uh actually there was somebody there from action on smoking and health wow um which i believe like, greg had turned to me and he was like i haven't seen these guys ever testify apparently you know yeah they don't they don't really surface that often um, and, and this person was clearly not very experienced in testifying, but, um, I guess the, just the, the sheer weight of the, the ordinances that were introduced inspired Ash to come out. Um, and, uh, my favorite presentation of the afternoon was from a New York city group. I can't remember their name, but, uh, they, they were, uh, w- one of the ordinances that's being that's introduced is uh, it it 
prohibits smoking and vaping. Uh, or maybe it's, I don't know. I actually, I don't know if vaping was included. So we'll just stick with smoking. Prohibits smoking in cars where uh, a person under the age of eight is present. Okay. Um, and uh, there was actually some interesting arguments. Uh, a, a New York City, uh, or, I'm sorry, a New York State Assembly member uh, spoke, and I believe he has a bill that would prohibit smoking in cars where someone under the age of 14 is present. Um, and, uh, so yeah, it it was some back and forth. There's some very interesting points raised about this. And, um, but I, I'll, I'll start with the display that was offered. You know, you can bring in props into New York city committee hearings and, uh, they had this toy car, um, you know, about the size of a, like a rugby ball and it had the led lights on the inside of the car. Okay. Uh, they were just static lights. I don't know why they didn't move, but they were there to symbolize smoke moving around the car, the interior of the car. And then she had a, a baby doll with the baby's lungs on the outside of its body. <laughs> well, that's... Uh... It was... Memorable. It was, it was bizarre. Um <laughs> So I, I, I wish I would have had the guts to get up and take a picture of it, but (laughs) I just had to, uh... I guess I would have been stunned. I mean, and I, whenever you see these, these ordinances, I I always want like these hearings. I I always wind up stunned with the children that get paraded in. Uh, one time I saw a woman bring her child in, um, wearing a gas mask. Nice. Yeah, that was, I didn't know they sold them that small. So that was <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> well, I, you know, there was a couple of times I thought, I thought the kids were going to be trotted out. Um, right. But I think there were, um, there were children that showed up, mm-hmm. but they weren't, they weren't being used as props. They were, right. uh, I think it was probably one of those like class trips to city hall kind of oh, thing yeah. and mm-hmm. you know here's a committee hearing this is where laws get made so um there was a there was a group of children that showed up and stand, stood in the back and said hi and then left um <laughs> so that but there was no like there was no testimony from teenagers or or anything oh. um exploitative like that That's good. Um, there was a group of students from pace university that that testified and they were actually um, I, I, I think they were, uh, what was the name of the class? It was like some environmental policy class and, um, it was, it was three students and their professor Pace mm-hmm. university is right across the street from, um, city hall. Um, okay. and part of their, their work in school, um, they had, uh, developed, a uh, an initiative that is actually introduced in Albany, um, but it criminalizes uh, possession of uh, tobacco products for anyone under the age of 21. And so, wow. right now, as the law stands in New York, uh, it's 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 illegal for a retailer to sell tobacco products and vapor products to anyone under the age of 21. Right. But possession and use is not criminalized. So. 
Um, you know, just as we had had said back when Tobacco 21 was being passed in New York City was, you know, you can just hop across the river to New Jersey if you're, you know, over 19 yeah. and purchase stuff. And actually, if this price floor gets passed in New York City, mm-hmm. uh, which will raise the cost of a pack of cigarettes up to $13 at a minimum, um, it now becomes worth it to, uh, you know, Right now, I think, um, well, it's currently worth it now. If you live in Manhattan um, along the path train, it, the, the path, a ride on the path will cost you like five bucks round trip. Right. And, and that's, you can get right to Hoboken that way. Nice. Um, and I don't know what cigarette prices are in Hoboken, but, you know, in New Jersey, it's $8 typically. Okay. So that's it's kind of it's kind of worth it. It's worth yeah. it for people to take the train over here, yeah, and is. pick up a carton of cigarettes. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know it's it's already worth it. And of course, there was lots lots of testimony yesterday from the convenience store guys. Um, you know the convenience store guys, the bodega guys, um, yeah. and, and some other interesting stuff I'll get to. But um, there were several city council members were getting into um, the, you know, the underground markets in, um, in, in New York city and how, you know, they, they're, they're all very conscious of it. Um, (laughs) And, and yeah, they're all aware of it. I I actually sent out, I I tweeted when I think it's, is it council member, is it Peter Koo? Um, He was the first one to talk about it. And he, he just, he went on. I mean, he was not happy about this price floor nonsense as he said he said you know he's like why why am i going to go to the store and spend 13 dollars on a pack of cigarettes when right now like i know in my neighborhood he he was from flushing he said i i know i can walk out on the street and get a pack of cigarettes for eight bucks from just some guy on the street so like why would i bother you know it's 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 insane this stuff just brings to mind eric garner oh yeah thing just you know it it (laughs) When I think about what happened to him for selling Lucy cigarettes, I, I'm just floored. And if you don't think criminalizing possession for under 21s will cause this sort of thing to go up, you're out of your mind. You're creating criminals out of normal people. Yeah, I'm sure if, if city council seriously considers that, the same voices that were opposed to uh, smoking in cars will will come back up criminalizing possession would be a huge deal in new york city um and uh yeah it was it was it was people were very vocal about the smoking in cars uh audrey silk actually brought this up uh former nypd she said you know this this just gives cops one more reason to pull over minorities um and, and 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 you know you know whatever um and you can't, you know, if you're a cop and you see somebody smoking, <clears throat> I mean, an eight-year-old, they're, they're not all tall. No. <laughs> you know, I mean, you're not, if you're, if you're riding behind a, a car and you think, oh, that, what, what, I mean, what's the, what's the indication to you other than those goofy stick figure, stick figure family stickers or, you know, baby on board, like... <laughs> what's your indication or it's a minivan you know what what's telling you that the person smoking in that car probably has an eight-year-old or under as a passenger i mean 
yeah. you know and so it's it's just sort of it gives it gives the police uh department one more reason to pull over um you know somebody they think they need to profile or, or jam up or whatever i you know right. profiling is illegal but we all know it happens so yeah. <clears throat> um yeah there was a lot of opposition to that mm-hmm. and That's- um and, well, and yeah, and people still um, sell Luthies in New York. <laughs> so. Yeah, um, Audrey Silk is from the group NYC Clash. Um, mm. uh, they're primarily a smoker's rights group. I just thought I would tell people, I, not that people don't, we know who Audrey is, but maybe not everyone does. Yeah. Um, yeah, Audrey did a, I think she did, she was featured in a piece on, I don't know if it was Vice. Um she grows her own tobacco. Yes, she does. In, I've in, I've had Audrey Audrey Silk's been on here before. Nice. Yeah. Um. She's she's amazing. She yeah. really is. Um. Yeah. She does. She grows her own. She uh, and uh, it was she lives she lives in it, Brooklyn too. It's, yeah. It's was she, was that the story where she was standing in the park smoking? Uh, at the beginning, and she tells you that this is unbelievably illegal in New York. What I'm doing right now could get me arrested probably yeah that that was voice um she wrote a really interesting piece about um bill de blasio harassing smokers for the huffington post last week too as well for my semester. yeah so, it's yeah. worth a, it's worth a read it's several of the points that she made in that article um were were things that that city council members shared um yeah. in opposition to these yeah. bills so at some um, point at some point, these things do go too far. <laughs> yeah, and and New York is is an excellent example. I mean, they've already reached the point of diminishing returns with their existing price floor. Um, in in that you know everything is 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 you know, over over half the cigarettes sold in the city are sold on the underground market. So, sure. um, you know, I it's just kind of insane that they would raise that any higher. Um, and you know, it, there's just yeah. So anyway, I, we, we've spent a lot of time talking about, you know, the ordinances and how they affect smoking. But, you know, our um, the, the, the other things that I, I actually did not speak about since there, there were 45 people signed up to um, to speak at the hearing, not not 45 people in opposition, but 45 people total. Right. Um, and I, I, will, I do have to credit the the the, the committee. Um, they kind of put you on panels of, of, you know, four or five, six at times. Uh, and they they sort of hear uh, uh, support for the bills, and then they hear opposition, okay. and then they they go back and forth. So um, both sides seem to have uh, kind of it, both sides had pretty much ended up with equal time, yeah. uh, which was which was good. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I you know it, it's, it's certainly I, I think. Uh, advocates in New York. I know that the, the New York Vapor Association um, had, you know, requested a meeting with Bill, um, primary bills, the the bills primary sponsors. They uh-huh. wanted to present, you know, science and, and studies and stuff to them. Right. Uh, and uh, the, the, they never heard back from the bill sponsors. So, um, you know, you have equal time in the committee hearing, but maybe not so much outside of you know and these are people who you know they're these are 
some of you know the New York State Vapor Association people, some of them, you know, these these are their their council members, mm-hmm. um, and, and 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 the council, their their representatives should be listening to them. So yes. um, it was disappointing to hear, but uh, not all that unpredictable. <laughs> so, um, but that's that. I don't have any information on next steps. This was just a hearing. No action was taken. Um, uh, this was just, you know, whatever. Um, so we'll be sure to follow that. Uh, you know, it, obviously it's New York city policies set in New York city tend to, um, reverberate throughout the country. And, um, yeah. Um, and while we're at the, the municipal level, uh, the San Francisco flavor ban, uh, the language for that has been posted on the, the, the city website um okay. that's horrible i think that's enough <laughs> to say about that well, well okay much... flavor ban horrible I, that i agree yeah I, I don't know how much more we need to go into that that'll no. pretty much put put vaping out of business in san francisco yeah if you, you read it um, for yourself you'll be horrified yeah so it you know it's and there have been i know that all, during the indoor clean air law Mm-hmm. Um, there was, uh, th- there was some participation, some weird participation, especially from the pot folks. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I'm not, I, I just, I don't have my finger on the pulse of San Francisco, but I really, you know, if, if you're in the Bay area and you listen to this or follow CASA at all, um, that's, we need to, I, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, we need to work with you and and try to help get people motivated because this is unacceptable. Um, you know, we've got Jennifer Berger Coleman is in the area, so um, you know she's going to be working on things. Um, you know, to to bring some opposing voices to to whatever hearing, um, and 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 try to get people you know organized and talking to to um, city supervisors. Right. Um, but. Uh, yeah, there just needs to be more participation in San Francisco. It's, you know, I, I understand, you know, after years of just sort of getting kicked in the teeth, I, I can understand why people are just sort of cynical and generally not motivated to engage with government. But, you know, we, we still, um, you know, I, I think we're going to discover some new voices in this, in this, right. in this conversation and, and sure. we need to, we need to rally behind it. Well, I mean, I don't think it's so much that I know you think it's that and I kind of agree with you, but I think, um, smokers and to another degree vapors because most of us were smokers they're just kind of calm chilled out kind of people do you know what i mean they don't seek to hurt anybody and they don't think that anybody's going to hurt them um psychologically i think this is just difficult you know it, it was it was hard for me when i went to testify in venice it was really hard that's not something you want to do but you have to yeah so um that's that there's also uh i I think we already talked about this but there's several communities uh in in california that are looking at flavor bans um i don't have the list in front of me i know contra costa county is one of them no well there Um, contra costa county always does stuff like that they were one of the first for tobacco 21 weren't they in california probably yeah yeah there it's it seems bad and and again participation seems kind of low so um yeah 
so we're, we're following that in other places but you know obviously san francisco is kind of a huge deal yeah. um they they all like new york san francisco likes to consider themselves influential in terms of policies that other municipalities will adopt and even states but they kind of are <laughs> so they definitely they are should. yeah so yeah. yeah um so yeah uh and I, I also while we're on the municipal level okay. um heartland wisconsin the village board i believe is the official way to say that okay. um is continuing their hearings Mm -hmm. on the uh on coordination right. um they had a hearing i guess last mm -hmm. night um from like five o'clock until nine o'clock central time mm -hmm. and uh this will resume uh, they had they had hearings today yeah. i am not sure the one that, that happened last night was broadcast um heartland the village of heartland has a, a youtube Okay. Uh, page so if you're curious about that hearing you can check it out on youtube um i know that there were i, I think last night uh jeff steyer and lou ritter yeah uh, provided testimony uh, i did see a picture of aaron bieber today wow. i think he i don't know if he testified last night or today um the hearing is concluded for today but okay. uh um, it will begin again tomorrow, Saturday, at uh, 9 a.m. tomorrow. Apparently, they will be posting the live link at 8.30 a.m. Okay. I'm also assuming that's central time. Okay. Um, so you can look up the Village of Heartland on the Google um, yeah. <laughs> and find out all the information that you if, would like if, you, if you'd like to follow that. If you happen to be listening in chat, the link is in the chat. Super. Um, so good thing um i i've heard it was amazing i haven't had a chance to watch any of that yet i've been kind of busy with work and school and stuff so um that is what i plan to do tomorrow i took a vacation day for specific things and that was one of them i was yeah, called on that yeah. I, I was called a nerd earlier <laughs> I, at least a couple weeks ago because i was going back and reviewing a committee hearing in alaska which i'll get to on that but um but that's you taking a vacation day to watch this, to watch the coverage from uh, <laughs> Heartland, Wisconsin. That's that's super nerd. Yeah. Well, uh, hey, <laughs> have you, <laughs> have you met saying. me? Yeah. We've uh, never can... met. We've I never know. met. No, I know. Yeah, we'll it's this that. wonderful. It's this wonderful retail job. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll buy a root beer. Awesome. Maybe I'll buy your root beer. All right. Fantastic. Um. Yeah, I did watch a little bit of it. I see Very chiming in here. I watched a little bit of it live too, and I I will probably go back and watch. <laughs> but I'm not going to take it. I mean, for me, it's it's my job, so it doesn't yeah. require a day off. Um, it does for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, <clears throat> uh, I'm actually waiting for the recording for the New York City Council hearing as well. That will be available. Um, I'll share that link when it comes awesome. up. <clears throat> um, be worth seeing. That'll always, that's always good to see those. Yep. So uh, before we move on to the federal stuff, we got a couple of state things to um, address. Uh, the easy one is Indiana. Um, the Indiana SB1 is 
is, is passed and law and you can get back into Indiana. Um, I think there are some details about it, but um, I, I would encourage everyone to look up the Indiana Smoke Free Association <clears throat> and see you know what details they're providing i believe i did get a message from from amy um yeah it's not as simple as just selling in, into indiana there's i think a process okay. um but uh if you are interested um let's see uh may 5th at 2 okay. p.m eastern um, there's going to be some background about how this became law. There's, it's a webinar. Um, so, uh, check it out. If I don't know how open to the public it is, uh, I, I assume they might limit this to ISFA members or, um, okay. you know, other people that have been specifically contacting them. I, I'm not sure, but, um, so there, there are details and there are things uh, to, um, that, you know, people need to understand. Right. in order to uh, get back into Indiana. Um, so, <clears throat> um, Indiana, great news. Um, yes. And look for details on that. So, uh, the other bills uh, I had mentioned earlier, um, Alaska SB3. Yes. I'm not entirely clear what's going on. The regular session in Alaska is supposed to end today, I believe. Okay. Um, it's Alaska is what, four hours behind. So, yes. um, you know, it's still two o'clock, something there. Uh, but uh, SB 63, which was, you know, expanding the indoor clean air law in Alaska, mm -hmm. um, it moved out of the uh, community and regional affairs committee um, mm -hmm and is now in judiciary but the next avail like there was supposed to be there's supposed to be a meeting today at 1 p.m it's listed okay. as no meeting scheduled there's the next opportunity for a meeting is next week there's no meeting scheduled so uh, i'm not entirely clear as to when a hearing is going to happen and i'm still not clear on whether or not today is a hard stop for the legislature okay. um so uh, that's where we're at. It's still in committee. Okay. Um, and apparently the end of the session is coming up. Um, mm -hmm. The other bill, um, with the other bit of good news is Pennsylvania yes. SB 508 uh, from Senator Bartolotta nice. is uh, moving right along, which is great. Yes. Um, I, I don't know where it's going next, but it was heard in the Senate Finance Committee this week, uh, I believe Wednesday, uh, and it received nine yes votes and only three no votes. Wow. So that's a great start for this bill. Yes. And um, uh, I, I will need to update our engagement to send uh, send some thank yous to the yes votes and send some please support this bill emails to the rest of the Senate. Yeah. Um, Excellent. So uh, that's that. So we're moving right along to all the news that everybody really wants to know about, which is <laughs> what's going on with the Cole Bishop amendment. Okay. 
and what's all this stuff I'm hearing about the Duncan Hunter bill? Um, first, uh, the House passed a continuing resolution today mm -hmm. that funds the government for another week. And this is until May 5th. Okay. Till Cinco de Mayo. Hey. Hey, party time. <laughs> um, and what's happening this weekend is uh, everybody's going to get together and mm -hmm. they're going to work it out and there's going to be a bill by Monday. Um, that's, that's, I think that was the demand given to the House of Representatives today. Um, or the Senate's doing it. I'm not exactly sure who's doing it, but they're <laughs> going to have a budget bill on Monday and they're going to vote on it on Friday. Okay. So if I have this correctly, after the weekend, we should know whether or not we're in. Okay. Right now, we're still, we're still in play. Um, Representative Tom Cole... Um, I guess kind of confirmed that this morning on C-SPAN. Um, okay. Actually, Gregory Conley called in <laughs> and asked <laughs> him about it. Um, and, nice. and Representative Cole's response was, we're still in play. So um, nice. I, I want to say it's good news. I'm sort of impartial at this point because I don't want to get everybody too excited to the point where it was like, we, we win. Um, you know, we don't... They, nothing's final about this. Not yet. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they still got the weekend to derail the country. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I don't, I wouldn't put it past them. Um, so we're just waiting to hear, um, you know, about all of that this right. weekend and, you know, still, you know, by all means, make phone calls, send emails. Um, you know, we, we put we put out a, uh, a very, very easy phone call engagement this week. Um, it is, it's on, you know, august8th.org. Mm -hmm. If you, if you look at the, there's that, that kind of dark gray box to the right, or if you're on the mobile site, uh, I guess it's below. Right. Yeah, one of them looks like a little envelope and the other one looks like a telephone. Mm -hmm. If you click or tap on the telephone, we'll call you. How easy is that? Everybody's going nuts about resist bot. Right. Um, how about we give you a phone call and just, you know, there's a phone robot that will connect you to your awesome. lawmakers. Um, awesome. Yeah. It's, this is, you know, part of what we invested in this year. So, um take full anybody that is is just not <clears throat> savvy you know internet savvy to 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 look up phone numbers for their representatives um we're just we've taken the guesswork out of it for you so um it is very easy i tested it i had to you know i had to actually put the whole thing together um right. so it's uh it is very easy and um and not a lot of people have taken advantage of it which is to me kind of disappointing but yeah um i but i'm i'm also a bit relieved because we only have so much you know there's only we only have so many credits for this thing so um okay. if if people don't use it you know and then it just doesn't cost us anything but right. um but i would prefer that people actually get in touch with their lawmakers and this is a very easy way to do it so right. um 
so yeah, by all means, continue the phone calls through the weekend and sending emails. Um, they're they're going to be working on this stuff. Good. And of course, you know, um, moving right along, uh, we we talked about the Duncan Hunter bill mm -hmm. last week. And uh, I, I just kind of want to reiterate a couple of things um, because I have had a couple of conversations with people and I'm not, uh, I, I know that, you know, this is breaking news to a lot of folks. Yeah. Um, nobody, you know, I, I think a couple of people have talked about this bill in the past couple of months um, right. and talked about it in very strange ways. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, that's pretty much the extent of, you know, the, the quote unquote coverage that it's received. Um, okay. Certainly, you know, we have not been talking about it specifically. Um, and the, the reason for that has been, you know, we need to put our effort behind the, you know, things that are going to give us immediate relief. Right. Um, namely the Cole Bishop amendment. So, um, but for those who are sort of just joining the conversation, yes, Congressman Duncan Hunter from California mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, has introduced the Cigarette Smoking Reduction and Electronic Vapor Alternatives Act of 2017. Uh, this would effectively remove us from the existing tobacco regulations, create separate regulations for vapor products, um, also requires a comparative risk assessment for all tobacco products, um, and um uh some other stuff and oh sets some standards uh for uh vapor products okay. uh namely uh e-liquid mm -hmm. so that being the case i i think you know my my summation doesn't really do it justice but I, you know i think that that people should be aware that this is this is the start i mean this is about as I think bare bones as is appropriate for something like this to start. Mm -hmm. um, there are still some things that need to get worked out. I have had a conversation with um, Hunter's office and they're aware that things need to be, you know, continue this bill. We got to work the bill. Things need to be hashed out a bit more, um, but you just, you've got to get it in somewhere. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I don't, I, I haven't heard, you know, any amazing explanation as to why it needed to come out this week, um, but it did, and and so here we are. Okay. Um, one of the things that I think people may not understand, uh, if you're new to politics, if you're new to um, the legislative process, you may not understand the legislative process um, and uh, it's important to keep in mind you know we're not you know this this bill isn't dedicating uh, a street to you know a fallen hero um, we're not establishing a, a national well I guess a, a federal holiday would be kind of a bigger deal but um, you know this is not this is not a simple bill Right. It may seem simple to you. People might read this language and say, oh, this is awesome. This is what I want. Support that and think that 
that's that we're done. Um, it's not. That stuff uh, gets amended. There are concessions given. It's it's an interesting process. Yeah. Um, it, it all of you know the the stakeholders are gonna come in and you know we're gonna start seeing pressure and politics played by the body part groups mm -hmm. but the body part um the body part league uh <laughs> and and others right. uh you're gonna see some some very vocal opposition to this oh, yeah. uh, they're and they're gonna continue the narrative of the further weakening fda's authority to keep children safe um and 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 yeah like you said there's i mean there's gonna be you know, there's going to be concessions and horse trading and, um, you know, hopefully things stay relatively intact. Hopefully, you know, after a period of time, we end up with a bill that actually does improve things. Yes. Uh, but uh, there's a lot of work that's going to go into this. That yeah. being said, it should be clear to everyone that this is going to take a lot of time. Mm -hmm. um, I know that someone had spoken about this bill uh, as if it was going to take 60 days to pass. Uh, <laughs> that's, you know, I, I, no, it's, I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, uh, we're, we're dealing with a, with a highly controversial topic and, um, Years. this is, this is something that could, you know, I expect this to take more than two years. Yeah. Um, exactly. I, I, I'm happy to be wrong by the way. So, I, you know, don't take this as gospel, but I, I, yeah, I'm, I, I, if, if next week, you know, we come back and I, I've got, you know, some sort of Intel saying, Nope, this is going to get done in 60 <laughs> days. I'm happy to share that with people. But, you know, right now, I think the conventional, um, uh, you know, wisdom on this says, uh, you know, this this could take many years to get done and you know one of the reasons why we're not you know out in the street banging pots and pans is because uh number one we realize that this is going to take a long time uh but number two uh if we throw our full weight behind something like this now um I think there's potential to lose sight of the fact that there are still kinks that need to be worked out in this. Yeah. Um, there, there is a, a more, I think there's a more friendly and deliberate way to go about gaining broad support for this bill. Right. Um, and that's something that's going to happen, you know, I think out of the, you know, a lot of that's going to happen out of the view of, of, you know, the general public. Right. Um, those are, those are meetings that, you know, constituents have with their representatives yeah. and, um, and there's some coalition building that goes on and there's a lot of work that goes into this. Um, and, and of course, you know, once those coalitions are formed and people keep talking about it, you know, more things are talked about with the substance of the bill and certain things need to get ironed out. And sure. again, we're back to this whole, it takes, it takes time, mm -hmm. but, you know, also in putting full weight behind the bill now, means that we're not talking about the things that the industry needs today. Well, I mean, right, if, this right. take, if this takes two years, won't the industry be mostly gutted by that point? Yeah, I mean, if we don't see some, if we don't start seeing movement towards relief this year, and I mean like in the next, you know, four to six months, okay. I, I'm probably pushing it with four months. Um, if, if we don't start seeing 
movement towards some sort of relief, you know, even the big vapor companies are going to start they're They need to start making plans to wind down their business so that they don't lose their shirt. These are, you know, they're not just, it's not, it's not just, just going to get to August 8th and everybody says, well, we didn't, you know, we didn't get what we needed from, from Congress. So let's turn the lights off and go home. That's not how a business yeah. goes out of business. Nope. Um, you know, people that, that people that do that end up poor and without a place to live yeah. um, and, and, and screwed out of potentially millions of dollars. Yeah. Um, so, you know, no, the, you know, these folks are going to have to start making plans yeah. to, you know, dismantle their business and move on to the next thing. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and, and those plans take time and you're going to, you know, if, if we don't see relief this year, I think you're going to start seeing people do that starting in, you know, August and September. Yeah. Um, no, I, I agree. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Most definitely. Most definitely. <sighs> I apologize. I was doing that annoying thing where I vape into the microphone. I do um, that all the time. You don't need to <laughs> apologize. I always feel like I should apologize too, but then I'm like, well, it's a vaping podcast. So <clears throat> it's a, this part is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. So anyway, uh, I'm looking forward to engaging on the Duncan Hunter bill as we move forward. Certainly Kassaw has a huge stake in this yeah. and, um, you know, we, we, everybody, you know, wants something like this to happen. Mm -hmm. So, um, but again, I'm probably going to bring this up every Friday until okay. the end of time, because, uh, <laughs> you know, this, that's the thing with breaking news. It's sort of takes a time I, I guarantee you at some point next week somebody's going to post something up like did you guys see this it's amazing <laughs> um and you know people are going to have to chime in and be like yeah it, you know yeah you no know, <laughs> calm down let's talk about it um yeah. and and we'll you know bring you up to speed sure. and hopefully at some point next week we find out that we're that we're saved to some extent in the, yeah. in the budget yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think, I think that would, uh, that would definitely be good news. Um, I, I will certainly say, um, at least on the vaping front, I, I feel, you know, optimistic that there's forward momentum somewhere. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we've seen ground kind of won back in, yeah. in Kansas Indiana is mm -hmm. huge. I mean, that's not necessarily on, I think, the merits of vaping. It, it, I think that more has to do with just how corrupt the Indiana legislature is um, <laughs> or, or was. I don't know. But um, and, and, and I hopefully, you know, we're seeing this positive momentum in Pennsylvania. Yes. Um, we also, you know, actually, I didn't I'm not going to get into it because I wasn't following in that, it that closely, but we have our third tobacco 21 bill, actually, maybe the fourth uh, that has failed. And that was in Vermont. Yeah. And I mean, I'm very happy. And I think, well, I mean, isn't Vermont part of the free state project? I don't know. I think Vermont is part of the free state project. So it really wouldn't surprise me if the, um, the voluntarists 
voluntarist. I, I don't even know how to pronounce it. But if the people who are um, anarcho-capitalists uh, really got involved in, in trying to beat that down. Interesting. Because of uh, personal liberties. Yeah, they're, um, they're on it. I'll have to go back and research it and see what I can see from uh, committee hearing stuff. And um, that's interesting, but yeah. And I'm, and I'm certainly curious as to, you know, why particular States fail to pass tobacco 21. It usually ends up being the, the, the you know, the personal liberty personal argument. Freedoms. Yeah. yeah. It's a valid argument. You can go take a bullet. You should be able to smoke. <laughs> yeah. Or vape or, or in my opinion, drink. Yeah, it it is. You know, it's one of those. It is one of those things. I, it's I I don't see. Um, I I don't know if they would ever raise the age to vote to twenty one, uh, and I, I don't think the military would particularly like raising the age to join the military to twenty one. I don't think um, they would either. But you know, there's a similar arguments. I mean, I understand that there are some there are young people out there who, you know, they they grow up and they say I'm I'm going to grow up and I'm going to I'm going to join the army. Uh, and that's that is you know where their heart takes them, mm -hmm. but I think there are also other adults. The argument can be made that um, you know these young people again, their brain is not fully developed. They may not <laughs> really know that uh, they may not fully understand the risks of joining the military, and yet they do it anyway. Yeah. Uh, and I, I mean, I'm I'm not trying to be a prick about this. I just no, I, mean, no. I think I think that's a real thing, but you know no, it's not I... something. No, that, uh, I, <laughs> you know, people may, may want to you're, talk about you're not i'm probably the most anti-war person you'll ever meet so um i mean it's a valid argument if the brain's not fully developed then perhaps we should dissuade young people from entering the military as well yeah it, that seems like it's a highly volatile and risky situation yeah live ammunition being fired at you you know ordinance disposal all that sort of thing that just doesn't seem like a healthy environment yeah i i i tend to sort of go the other way with this and, and i actually haven't followed up with this group at all and i'm by, by follow up i mean check in and see what they're posting about or writing about but uh there is a group out there that is trying to get the voting age dropped to 16 and huh. you know and and you think about it and um you know once you're 16 typically when you're 16 uh, you can enter the workforce. Um, drive a car. You can drive a car. You're paying taxes, yep. but you are not able to vote. And you're not being represented in taxation without representation is kind of frowned upon. <laughs> right. So, um, I mean, let's you know consider going the other way with all of this stuff. Um, you know, when you're 16, maybe that's when you're an adult. Uh, you know, certainly if you can enter the workforce and pay taxes, then, you know, maybe you're eligible to do other things. Um, yeah. No, but nobody, nobody, I think agrees with that. But... <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's certainly a valid argument to be made. Yeah. If, if you're going to go by strictly by age, if some people are more mature that age than others, it's just hard to tell. And maybe that should be conditional. Do you have a job and do you drive a car? If the answer is yes, then you should be then you can, able you to can vote. join the army. You can join the army, you can smoke and you can vote. <laughs> How does that sound? Yeah. <laughs> Might get more kids working early. Who knows? Yeah, maybe. But uh, yeah, we probably shouldn't 
litigate that on the Kassab podcast. But... <laughs> it, it, it was it was I was taking the farcical outlook to its natural, although insane, off the cliff conclusion. Right. So on that note, which seemed to be <laughs> somewhat uplifting, I'm sure, um, I, I think that's all I have for this week. All right. Thank you for everything you do for us, Alex, and thank you for testifying in New York. Mm-hmm. It's much appreciated. And we will see you next Friday. Awesome. All right. Have a great right. weekend. You thank too. You. Thanks. Bye-bye. See ya. You can get Kasa's podcast at kasa.org. You can get Kasa's podcast at um, the Kasa SoundCloud page. You can also get Kasa's podcast by going to Apple Podcasts and typing in Kasa, uh, Kasa uh, Media, and the podcast feed will pop up for you, and you should be able to subscribe in your podcast app, so you will always know what's going on with Kasa. Okay, Mary. Okay, I see C-3PO has made an appearance. Well, with Uh, the subject matter this evening, you know. Yeah, well, yeah, Um, the subject for this evening is artificial intelligence. In case that wasn't clear, (laughs) is there anything in here that jumps out at you? Not really. <laughs> okay, well, uh, this one just trashes Elon Musk, and I know you're not a fan, so we'll just go with this first. Okay. All right. Elon Musk promises human-to-human telepathy. Don't believe it. Billionaire entrepreneur Elon Musk, by way of blogger and cartoonist Tim Urban, has revealed in a 36,400-word illustrated explainer the thinking behind his new company, Neuralink, and its mission to use brain implants to link directly human minds to computers. The Post argues that we should augment the slow, imprecise communications of our voices with a direct brain-to-computer link-up. This would permit both telepathy between people and advantageous relations with artificial intelligence, says Musk. Musk even gives a timeline. He says that within 8 to 10 years, healthy people could be getting brain implants as new computer interfaces. And I say it's not going to happen. The problem with the post is that despite its length, Musk does not reveal how he's going to do it. Between today's relatively crude ways of recording the brain and what Urban calls a mental wizard's hat is just a dotted line. Musk is not alone in his ambitions. Last week, Facebook, in its own surreal attempt to grab attention, put ex-DARPA boss Regina Dugan on stage with the claim that inside of two years, the social network will have a skullcap able to transmit sentences out of your brain at a rate of 100 words per minute. In Facebook's case, the cap would be meant to help you share your thoughts. In Musk's vision, it is actually a bunch of electrodes inside your brain (laughs) to enable humans to merge with artificial intelligence. Think about how Google fills in suggestions and what you're searching for. Musk is proposing the same sort of thing should occur in real time inside your head. If it's not possible to assert that no future technology make these things happen, but from what I know about brain implants, these achievements can be very difficult to attain. And from the timelines, they're not only wrong, they're pure malarkey. Let's deal with Musk's timeline first. 
a brain implant is a medical device that requires neurosurgery. Proving that it works requires a stepwise series of experiments that each takes years starting in rats or monkeys. Here's a timeline from the real world. A company called Neuropace was started in 1997 to develop an implant that controls epileptic seizures. It actually senses a seizure coming and zaps your brain to stop it. This device got approval in 2013, 16 years later. And that was for a very serious medical medical condition in which the brain in which brain surgery is common. Putting an implant in healthy people, that would require an extraordinary evidence of safety. And that's hard to picture because as soon as you open someone's head, you put that person's life at risk. We at MIT Technology Review know of only one case of a healthy person getting a brain implant, a crazy stunt undertaken in Central America by a scientist trying to do research on himself. It caused life-threatening complications. So Musk's timeline for mind-enhancing implants is patently unrealistic. Facebook's probably is too, but for other reasons. The gadget it discussed would be outside the skull where it's much harder to pick up accurate brain readings. Apparently the idea is to beam photons through the skull and watch what bounces back as it is possible to observe neural activity by measuring how cells reflect light. (coughs) I'm sorry. In her talk, Dugan cited the lack, um, cited the work of Kinshasa Shinoy, a Stanford professor and part of a team that this year set a brain typing record of eight words per minute. But they did so only after a decade of effort and by implanting electrodes inside of the brain of paralyzed volunteers. And most in the field would ask if non-invasive performance can even begin to approach the level of performance of implanted sensors. Most would say no and by a lot, Shinoy writes in an email. So what is Facebook even talking about? How are they going to do 10 times better using a hat with lights in it? I don't know, says Shanoi. Again, letting people think accurately, letting people accurately think to text as fast as they talk might be possible, but only with some big advances that are unlikely to reach perfection in two years. In some circumstances, brain reading really does work. In 1969, when scientist Albert Fetz connected one neuron in a monkey's brain to a dial, the monkey learned to fire that neuron to move the dial and get a food pellet. Since then, scientists have used implants driven into the motor cortex to allow paralyzed people to move a robotic arm with substantial dexterity. uh, These devices tap into the way neurons in your motor cortex fire when you think about moving an arm or leg. If it just so happens that these neurons all fire off at once when you move, but their relative speed contains vector information about your limbs, Use electrodes to record activity from a few dozen neurons, and you can start to perceive the movement as a subject thinks. So don't diss all neurotech and brain reading, says Andrew Schwartz, a University of Pittsburgh scientist who helped discover the motor patterns and was hooked up people to robotic arms. However, he adds, he doesn't know what Musk and the other Silicon Valley figures pursuing the technology are up to. The idea that they know what they are after is awful wishful thinking on our part, says Schwartz. Over the last couple of weeks, I asked several neuroscientists and entrepreneurs about Musk. Most declined to comment because there aren't any technical details available. I got some very polite answers. Here's Georgia Cortine, a neuroscientist at EPFL in Geneva, whose work with brain interfaces we included in our list of 10 breakthrough technologies this year. See reversing paralysis. I feel I don't know enough about this project to have an educated opinion about it, 
but I am very excited that a brilliant mind who pushes frontiers in research and industry is investing resource in neural brain engineering. Several people said they think the great man's money and gumption actually be what's needed to get neurotechnology out of the lab. Musk creates his advantage by tackling problems too complex for more risk-averse entrepreneurs to take on, like manufacturing electric cars, Tesla, or launching rockets, SpaceX. In both cases, he also says he's pursuing a higher mission, like saving the planet from global warming or getting humanity to a backup planet. Brain implant technology has been developing pretty slowly and is still mostly stuck in academia precisely because it's so complex. You need a way to record from the brain, a compact wireless chipset to transmit the signals, algorithms to know what they mean, and the medical knowledge to actually carry it off. It's not solely reliant just on technology, but also science, says Sean Patel, a fellow in neurosurgery at Massachusetts General Hospital who researches brain-computer interfaces. It's the execution of many facets. There is no single problem. There are many problems. Patel told me he's enthusiastic about the possibility of human enhancement. I must acknowledge it is the most obvious point. Before achieving telepathy, Neuralink will have to find a disease to treat. Show a solution for medical need. That is going to be a critical step for anyone, says Patel. But it also lets you develop the core technologies, including batteries, and the many things you need before you can imagine a futuristic idea of downloading a new skill to your brain, like being a black belt in karate. It's a foothold. There's some indications that Musk is picking a good time to invest. The brain implant most often used, a thumbtack-sized silicon device called the Utah Array, is 20 years old. But recently, there's been a surge of new inventions in brain measuring techniques, like optogenetics and schemes for recording many neurons at once in the brain. One of the co-founders of Neuralink, DJ Sao, DJ SEO, <laughs> previously worked at the University of California, Berkeley, on a concept called neural dust. Injecting the brain with thousands of tiny silicon modes able to record and transmit human information using acoustic vibrations. Another thing in favor of Musk's proposal is that, sim that symbiosis between the brain and computers isn't fiction. Remember that person who types brain signals or the paralyzed people who move robot arms? These systems work better when the computer completes the person's thoughts. The subject only needs to type B-U-L-L-S and the computer does the rest. Similarly, a robotic arm has its own smarts. It knows how to move. You just have to tell it to. So even partial signals coming out of the brain can be transformed into more complete ones. Musk's idea is that our brains could integrate with AI in ways that we wouldn't even notice. Imagine a sort of thought completion tool. So it's not crazy to believe there could be some very interesting brain-computer interfaces in the future. But the future is not as close at hand as Musk would have you believe. One reason is that operating on a person's skull is not a trivial procedure. Another is that technology for safely recording from more than 100 neurons at once, neural dust, neural lace, optical arrays that thread through your blood vessels remains mostly at the blueprint stage. So what facts am I missing? What makes it even remotely okay that Musk and Facebook are promising public telepathy within a few short years? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I've said it before. Yeah, Musk. He blurts out stuff, and people go, oh, it's amazing. And it's like, yeah, the technology just doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, not on any <laughs> meaningful level. It's well, decades away. Sure um, it is. I'm sure it is. I mean, that... Even with the speed of technological increase, it's probably decades away. 
don't know. We, we don't that. even have a full map of exactly how all the different bits of our brain work, let alone they're, wiring it all up to a computer. You know. Well, they're working on one, I believe. Maybe I'm crazy, but I believe that they're working on mapping a, is it a sheep's brain? Yes. A monkey brain? Yeah, they're they're working on mapping one at like MIT. Yeah. Which it's taking a lot longer than they thought because you know that's complicated. Yeah. That <laughs> that gray pink glob in the middle of your skull. Yeah. Really, really complicated. They've managed I mean, rats and mice. Yeah. But they don't have a lot going on. So <laughs> No, exactly. So it's very different. <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah, there's those ro remote control rats and mice. Have you seen yeah, that one? Yeah. I have. Yeah. They can so, remote control them. But, yeah. yeah, that's the best they've managed so far. Yeah. I mean, and things like the way, as as was mentioned in the story, disabled people interacting with the world. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Stephen Hawking's, the way he mm -hmm. speaks. Yes. But that's not neural connection. That no. he's controlling a muscle in his face. Yep. To twitch. Mm -hmm. um, to produce response. Completely different from a direct neural interface. I mean, I, I think the neural lace and, and neural link technology, uh, I think it's terrifying. But I think it could be really liberating for somebody with multiple sclerosis. Somebody like um, Michael J. Fox. Imagine yeah. something that would stop his shaking. Well, or, yeah, I mean, it was an avatar. Yeah. The guy's yeah. disabled and suddenly yeah. has a body he can run around in. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> All of these things are going to be amazingly liberating for people who need them. You know, and technology is moving quicker. I mean, I was talking about the basic neuroscience last night with a, a friend of mine. And I was saying, you know, in the last 20 years, just with drug and behavior therapy um, alone, we've moved so far because when you look at people with schizophrenia just for instance this is just something i happen to know about it used to be the 30 30 30 thing 10 percent of people would die 30 would get better 30 would get worse and 30 would stay the same no matter what you did yeah. right? with people with schizophrenia now we're at a 50 50 level so outcomes have really improved although it might not seem that way you know, outcomes have really improved for a lot of people because we're understanding more about the brain. We're still not there yet, though. And I think a lot of that has to do with how the brain actually works. I don't think we're um, we're not at that point where we can understand how it works. Well, you know also, what I mean? also, the big thing these people, well, Musk, not the actual scientists, <laughs> never take consideration of is... All the successes they've had with brain interface, it's disabled people who have it's to concentrate been... really damn hard to get it to work. Yeah, I mean, it's not. You can't just stick be... it in anybody's brain and it works perfect straight away. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I mean, what it, what it kind of is, is a way to help complete a gap. And and they still have to work really hard to make it work. So, in in the but, case of this particular announcement, though, I think Musk watched Gamer. Uh, <laughs> have you seen that film? No. Gerard Butler. 
Oh, it's excellent. Okay. Nan nanobots rebuilding people's brains, replacing brain cells. That's enabling you to remote control them and stuff. Um, we're not. We're not at that point yet. I, I think Musk was watching that though, and that's where he got his idea. Right, but I'm because yeah, I'm he's saying... so original. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we're nowhere near that point. Um, so I think we have very little to fear from that. Hi, Margo. I see you. Are you here? Well, she okay. she she's in. She's she in. in. I'm trying to hide. I just got here. <laughs> well, you just missed us making fun of Elon Musk. Again. And Facebook. Yeah, Elon Musk seems to be the topic of a lot of derision on this show. <laughs> Mainly from me, but that's because he just talks shit so much. I don't so much listen to the man speak, so that's how I can, like, I guess, yeah, but I, preserve I a little bit of respect. Yeah, I lots of technology stuff. I don't think so that, you know, he talks and it's like, oh, the idiot's talking again. <laughs> <laughs> When's the real scientist turning up? Um, <laughs> I don't listen to the man talk. I mean, and that's probably how I can have a modicum of respect for him. But I mean, he's throwing money at problems. And if anything's going to solve these problems, it's going to be money. Although yeah. I'm not sure the Neuralace technology that connects a human brain to AI and gives us human to human and human to machine telepathy and thought completion is a good thing. Well, Although nine that out technology, of, nine out that of ten of his projects don't go anywhere. So oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, no, but that technology, if they can make it work, is going to be a boon for people with dementia. Those are the people it's really going to help. You know what I mean? People yeah. with incomplete thought processes and the like. So yeah, I, I just I don't see. It's not a problem. But yeah, it's, going to it's a solved. long way away. Their time scales are insane. Um, <laughs> That's Musk for you. <laughs> well, and the Facebook one's not much better. Uh, no. Um, should I go with that one next? Yeah, you, you might as well. Okay. All right. You know, since, uh, since we're talking AI. Okay. Facebook sci-fi plan for typing with your mind and as an added bonus, hearing with your skin. Because, you know, synesthesia is so you cool. already do. Yeah, no, but I'm saying I have synesthesia when I get migraines really bad. I have synesthesia. This is not fun. Inside the mysterious building eight, the social networking is working on a far out communication technology. A year ago, Facebook started up a special skunk, skunk works team called Building 8 to focus on creating futuristic gadgets, saying the secret of projects would push forward the company's goal of connecting the world. On Wednesday at the annual F8 Developer Com Conference, the company revealed two of the six projects that are underway, and they sound a lot like science fiction. Facebook says it hopes to build a new kind of non-invasive brain machine interface, such as a cap or headband that lets people text simply by thinking. Another aims to build a wearable device, an armband perhaps, that makes it possible to hear words with your skin. Building 8's leader, Regina Dugan, says both projects have been underway for six months and that Facebook will decide in two years whether they're worth continuing. Dugan was previously the head of Google's similarly styled Advanced Technology and Projects Group and director of the Pentagon's DARPA Research Agency. And yeah, neither one of those have any nefarious goals at all. 
the Thinking to Text project is headed up by Mark Chevellet, previously an adjunct professor of neuroscience at John Hopkins University. Chevellet said the goal over two years is to build a non-invasive system that picks up speech signals inside the brain and permits people to silently turn those thoughts into text at the speed of 100 words per minute. We just want to be able to get those signals right before you actually produce the sound so you don't have to say it out loud anymore, he said. So, like, because Dragon Speech Detect technology is so fucking good. I don't know if anybody's used Dragon Speech Detect, but I have, and yeah. <clears throat> it's, it's not that great. Even the new improved is not that great. <clears throat> Facebook says it's collaborating with John Hopkins University, the University of California, Berkeley, and the University of California, San Francisco on the project, which Savellet says will focus on finding a way to use light, like LEDs or lasers, to sense neural signals emanating from the cerebral cortex. The method would work in a way that's related to how functional near-infrared spectrometry is used to measure brain activity. Such a device, a headband or a sort of cap, could be useful to people severely paralyzed so that they can't communicate. Over time, though, brain interfaces could be a way to think a message rather than typing it, or send a text in the middle of a conversation, Facebook thinks. They could also be a way to communicate with others in a virtual or augmented reality, which are technologies that Facebook has been pushing heavily. Chavella says there are already some good demonstrations of brain-computer interfaces like a recent study in which three people with paralysis were able to use their minds to select letters using an on-screen cursor, one of them typing at eight words per minute. In that study, a brain implant recorded neural signals. Others have experimented with trying to interpret what sounds people are making or thinking about. Such speech decoding projects have involved surgery to install electronic implants in the brain or on its surface. Now the Facebook researchers are exploring whether it's possible to figure out what someone wants to say by detecting signals outside the brain and translating them into text. Doing so accurately in real time and at the rate Facebook proposes would represent a huge step forward over what neuroscience has shown is possible so far. Neuroscientists who viewed Dugan's presentation today at Facebook's developer complex conference were left with more questions than answers. It was pretty vague exactly how they're gonna get direct neural activity from these optical techniques. That's the big question, said Mark Slutsky. Yeah, it's Slutsky a neurologist and neuroengineer at Northwestern University. If they can show that, it opens up a whole new realm of possibility, but state-of-the-art is nowhere near that. It remains to be seen how realistic it is to get highly detailed information non-invasively. Slutsky, I love this guy's name, <laughs> says brain implants under the skull so far can decode speech sounds people are thinking about producing with about only a 40 or 50% accuracy. The second project, which focuses on making it possible for people to recognize words with their skin, draws inspiration from Bail, Braille, and Tadoma, a method of communication in which people who are both deaf and blind place a hand on the face of another person to feel vibrations in the air as that person speaks. In an experiment, researchers built a device with 16 actuators on it and strapped it to an engineer's arm. Another engineer had a tablet computer with nine words on display. As he tapped the different words like grass, black, and cone, the first engineer felt vibrations on her arm that corresponded with the words and was able to correctly interpret that she needed to pick up a black cone on the floor in front of, on the table in front of her. To do this, researchers are taking a spoken word like black and separating it into its frequency components, then delivering those frequencies to the actuators on the arm, Dugan said. Instead of from her cochlear to her brain, she's taking the signal from her arm to her brain, she added. The researchers think of this as a way to deliver language on the skin. 
hoping that eventually people will be able to use the method to distinguish between about 100 words. They may also use nonverbal signals like pressure and temperature. Dugan said the idea is to eventually have a wearable that message is, sends a message you could feel without having to take your phone out and say interrupt an in-person conversation you're having with someone. Only through these projects will you be able to gadget you can buy. Dugan said she can imagine it happening eventually. I think two years, we should have a really good sense of whether it's possible to build them into consumer goods, she said. Well, oh. yeah. The, the first one, the <laughs> reading the brain, yeah, decades away. Second mm -hmm. one, using your skin to hear things. Loads of people already do this. They're called mm -hmm. deaf people. <laughs> have you heard of Evelyn Glennie? Mm -mm. She has been deaf since the age of 12 and taught herself to play music. Multiple musical instruments. She's world-renowned. Right. Stick the Wikipedia article in. And yeah, she senses the vibrations and can decode symphonies. <laughs> so yeah, that's more realistic. Average well, person learning that, mm, a mm. lot more difficult. But well, I mean, at least that one is in the realm of possibility. Right. I mean, of stuff that's around now. You know. Well, right. And it, a child brought up with such technology would have a much easier time adapting than an adult. Yeah. You know, uh, I mean, and the, the same goes for, you know, crazy Musk's uh, neural lace. But who the hell is going to give him a child to do that on? Yes. You know, uh, ethics boards are going to shit themselves. For oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and for another, you know, I, I, I don't think there's really any amount of money that makes someone want to give a, a, a child uh, to batch a crazy person like that. I, I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, that's just my thoughts. I, I think, yeah, yeah. Uh, again, these are way out there technologies, apart from the skin listening thing, which deaf oh, people already do. Uh, there <laughs> are there are more way out there things. Did oh, you yeah, no, see? No, yeah. Did you get down to? I have not read in advance the notes. I don't need to, because I'm sure I've probably heard of a lot of this stuff already. Um, uh, I don't think you have. Did you? Um... Okay, so. Um, AI exists in many forms. This is AI in its form most ridiculous. <clears throat> and AI wrote all of David Hasselhoff's lines in this bizarre short film. Okay. Um, and it is at Ars Technica, so if you are a big David Hasselhoff fan and you've just got to see it, somebody will pop the link in chat so you can go to Ars Technica and you can watch the film for free. It's the world premiere of, of this. <clears throat> Last year, director Oliver Sharp, I'm sorry, Oscar Sharp, and AI researcher Ross Goodwin released the stunningly weird short film, Sunspring. It was a sci-fi tale written entirely by an algorithm that eventually named itself Benjamin. It named itself. How quaint. Now the two humans have teamed up with Benjamin again to create its follow-up movie. It's no game about what happens when AI gets mixed up in an impending Hollywood writer's strike. Ours is excited to debut this movie here, so go ahead and watch. We also talked to the film cast and creators about what it's like to work with an AI. The scenario in It's No Game is sort of like Robocop, with about 20 hits of acid layered on top. Two screenwriters, Tim Gooney, 
and Walking Dead's Thomas Paine are meeting with a producer, Flash and Bone Sarah Ray, who informs them that it doesn't matter if they go on strike because the future AI is writing movies for other AI. As evidence, she shows them Sunspring, gushing about how it got a million hits. The fact that Sunspring did, in fact, get a million hits in real life, and there are really is a writer's strike threatening in Hollywood, make this movie even more of a reality distortion field. Things go completely off the rails when the producer brings in the Hoffbot, David Hasselhoff, in a tour de force performance that's surprisingly moving. The actor has been reprogrammed by nanobots to channel the AI writer Benjamin, and that's just what it sounds like when the Hoffbot springs to life. Checking his kit watch in full Knight Rider style, the Hoffbot sprouts odd shreds of dialogue from his 80s hits Baywatch and Knight Rider. Not, to content, not content to torment only Hasselhoff, the nanobots proceed to take over everyone else in the room, forcing them to act out lines cobbled together by more algorithms trained on Shakespeare, Aaron Sorkin films, Golden Age Hollywood scripts, and other surprises. Finally, Hay interjects herself as nanobots and dances a menacing, disjointed, and yet beautiful piece of choreography based on French words for ballet moves strung together by yet another algorithm. Before we move on, let's try to separate the truth from the science fiction for a moment. There are no nanobots that can take over your body, but there's actually an AI who wrote all these lines and dance moves. AI is not going to replace writers during the strike, but it might help humans write screenplays more often. Hoffbot is a bot, but he really is played by Hasselhoff. Hay really was a ballerina before she acted in a fictional TV series called Flesh and Bone about ballerinas. Also, the shorts Hasselhoff is wearing in the final brutal scene, yeah, those are the actual shorts he wore on Baywatch. How to be an AI-powered actor. When I spoke to some of the actors involved with It's No Game, they all seemed unfazed by having to inject emotion into lines that bordered on nonsensical. Partially, that was because Sharp and Goodwin played a lot with the genre in the short creating AIs who sprouted dialogue that came from recognizable sources. Payne, who played one of the writers, said he enjoyed the challenge of moving from one style to another. At one point, he and Gunny jumped from Golden Age Romantic Kiss right into a tense dialogue scene from an algorithm that Goodwin dubbed the Sorkinator. To a certain extent, you have to play a bit of mood, so you're putting across the style of dialogue, Payne said. As long as you say it with conviction, it will work. For audiences, the results might not be that different from trying to follow a complicated movie, Payne mused. People will watch a Sorkin movie and not take in what's being said, but understand the thrust of the scene and know what's going on. For Hay, the key to getting into her role was thinking about why her character might want to become a ballerina bot. Unlike the other characters, the producer isn't forced to become an AI puppet. She chooses it. Director Sharp talked to Hay about the idea that most people secretly want to give up control and how the nanobots represent that fantasy. Wouldn't it be easier if our computers and phones could take over and take control of us, Hay asked rhetorically. Those things freak me out in reality, but I think for her this is joyous. I'm free. When she stabs herself with the nanobot activating pen, it's like an orgasm for her. Finally, I have everything I need right now because I don't have to make any choices. After Hay's orgasmic AI takeover, however, we return to the fate of Hoffbot. Now shivering on the floor, he wears an incongruous outfit of his smoking jacket and Baywatch shorts, and stares into the camera with a tearful intensity. I don't know who the hell I am. I want to be a man, he sobs. I want to go to the movies. The absurdist lines were written by AI, but Hasselhoff says they feel like they came straight from his heart. This AI really had a handle on what's going on with my life, and it was strangely emotional, he explained. Hasselhoff continued. 
there was this one line, I don't want to see you anymore. I thought, that's a great line. I don't want to see you. I don't want to date you. I don't want to talk to you. It's like, I've had this conversation with my ex-wife so many times. I want to talk to you and for you to see me and understand me. When you're acting out these strange lines, they become part of your soul and you can actually give meaning to them. Track the final scene, Hoff, Hasselhoff. Imagine he had taken over his own body again, fighting off the nanobots to say something that wasn't just a Hoffbot construction. When he was taken over, he had no choice but to say those lines, even when they were wrong. I would never have just said those lines, he said. But then he wanted to humanize himself. He just wanted to be a man. He wanted to go to the movies. That's my favorite line. I just want to go to the movies. Acting the Hoffbot part, though, was just like old times. Hasselhoff talked a lot to Sharp about the divide between himself as an actor and the Hoff, a caricature who he described as created by secretaries 14 years ago in Australia. It's not who I am. His emotional outburst in that final scene dramatizes the sometimes painful divide between self and commercial creation. For Sharp, who grew up hooked on Knight Rider, watching Hasselhoff transform into the Hoffbot was sort of like watching a fan's dream come true. At the same time, it was a fascinating look into how acting works. Watching David perform those, line, perform those lines, there's this moment where his whole stature changed. His shoulders went back and he took on the 80s power stance. The watch goes up to his mouth and it was like muscle memory. An actor's imagination exists in their body and his muscle memory kicked in. Then he mused that his electrifying moment was actually crafted by an AI. Benjamin helps you take these calcified cultural objects that we all recognize too easily and it automatically caricatures them. If Hoff is a character of a caricature, Ben takes it a step further writing in an algorithmic world. Like its predecessor, Sunspring, it's no game was made as part of the 48-hour film challenge at the Sci-Fi London Film Festival. Also like Sunspring, it's no game bent the rules of writing. Louis Savvy, who organizes Sci-Fi London, called Sharp and Goodwin's latest film with Benjamin counter-culture hacking. It's exciting, if not a little scary. Perhaps the scariest part of it's no game, at least for a writer, is the idea that the writer's strike might be resolved by hiring AIs. Sharp is currently writing a screenplay about the de-extinction of the woolly mammoths and said the possibility of the writer's strike is looming large in my life. But he isn't afraid that Benjamin will become a scab like a Robocop during the Detroit cop strike in the eponymous movie. In a way, we're being a bit satirical. In the year since Sunspring came out, the two have spent a lot of time answering anxious questions from people who think robots are about to take their jobs. Goodwin said, I've thought a lot about the invention of photography. Before that, creating photorealistic images required talent and training. Then the camera came along. It didn't make painting irrelevant. The camera set painting free. One of the things we're doing is setting writing free. Plus, added Sharp, if we ever get to the point that machines are good enough to replace us, then maybe that means we've invented a new form of intelligence life whose stories we want to hear. <sighs> Benjamin, the AI, hasn't become more sophisticated since his first writing job on Sunspring. He has multiplied. Goodwin trained six different models to write the dialogue, and it's no game, mostly using the same short, long, short-term memory recursive machine learning algorithms that generated the screenplay for Sunspring. <clears throat> Put simply, the algorithm learns to create long sentences based on learning rules from a corpus of writing. In this case, the corpuses were huh, comprised of dialogue taken from several collections of films and television series. Only the valet sequence was written by a different algorithm called context-free grammar, which uses basic rules to generate short phrases from words. One of the models, called the Sokalizer, 
was also used in Sunspring to generate the final Ultra Strange speech. It was trained on the Cornell Movie Dialogues Corpus. The other models were based on David Hasselhoff shows Knight Rider, Baywatch, um, Shakespeare, Robard, Golden Age Hollywood, Golden Age Matic, and Adam Sorkin, Sorkinator. This time, Godwin chose to train his algorithms on subtitle files rather than screenplays. This gave him a sharp lines of dialogue without the truly odd stage directions and character names from Sunspring. But the biggest change was that Benjamin wasn't as much of a unified voice. Instead, he become many versions of himself, much the way the AI character played by Scarlett Johansson in her does. Having all the different models definitely made Ben feel more like a tool, or more dispersed anyway, Goodwin said. As I was creating, generating the material, I was thinking, will this soon be a common way to make a screenplay? Writing multiple voices is a challenge for any writer, and it just seemed to be useful to be able to summon various voices on demand. Putting other pondering other people's fears about AI, Sharp returned to the topic of his beloved 80s Hasselhoff shows. The irony is that our story of tech helping us, of AI helping us, is one that kids found inspiring with Knight Rider, he said with a grin. Now I have my own thinking car that helps me with mysterious things. I've said there are many types of AI. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, I've what? heard a lot about <laughs> the, these. And yeah, at the, at the minute it can manage... Uh, Melodrama grade bad TV. Um, <laughs> I think it'll be a while before, yeah, oh, good screenwriters have to worry. Um, well, when you, you watch stuff department. like this, you're like, well, you... there's a lot in it that makes no sense whatsoever. Well, you know, it, it's kind of like um, when Google first put out, you remember their, their Deep Dream? Yes. That was some, it's still some really screwed up shit. Yeah. Deep Dream has some of the most screwed up stuff and it's strange seeing how it learns visually. And this is just kind of how it learns language. And it's it's very much in its infancy, but you know. I do think it's ironic that the, <clears throat> this particular project, there's so much concentration on David Hasselhoff who is not renowned at being you know, a very good actor. Um, so yeah, the AI probably managed to get the lines <laughs> quite easily. I would imagine <laughs> he's not known for subtlety. Let's face it. <laughs> uh, Margo, anything on this? Okay, probably not. So yeah, I, I think um, I haven't seen it yet. Um, yeah. Well, it's, just, it's, it... it's doing the the the. No, but you can watch it on the Ars Technica page right yeah. now. Yeah. I mean, not. I, I'm just saying I haven't seen it in... I, I wonder what its IDMB score is or its Rotten Tomato score is because I bet it's not very high. Probably I'm not. not I wouldn't imagine. Um, I'm not going to look that up. Okay, very... <laughs> no, I'm not I, looking it up either. Yeah, I. You need to pick one because I right. picked the okay. first three. I say this is hard. I'm just gonna have to rely on headlines because I haven't. I deliberately didn't read through it. Okay. Mainly because you know I was watching the Heartland stuff up until half an hour before we started. So. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. I mean. Jurgen Huber. There you go. There you are. <laughs> 
Okay. This I've even I've right. even helped you with the name a bit, although Thomas might be upset now. Um, <clears throat> I'm sorry if I butchered this, Thomas. Jurgen Schmudhuber on the robot future. They'll pay as much attention to us as we do to ants. In a soft furnished studio space behind a warehouse in West Berlin, a group of international scientists are debating our robot future. An engineer from a major European car maker is just finishing a cautiously optimistic progress report on self-driving vehicles. Increasingly, he explains, robot cars are learning to differentiate cars from more vulnerable objects, such as pedestrians or cyclists. Some are already better than humans at telling apart different breeds of dog. But of course, he says, these are small steps. Then a tall athletic man with a light gray three-piece suit and a grain goatee who has spent most of the morning playing with his smartphone strides to the podium and suddenly baby steps become interstellar steps. Very soon, the smartest and most important decision makers might not be human, he says, with the pitting smile of a parent explaining growing pains to a teenager. We're on the verge of not of another industrial revolution, but of a new form of life, more like the Big Bang. Jurgen Schmuderber, and I butchered that again, has been described as the man the first self-aware robots will recognize as their papa. The 54-year-old German scientist may have developed the algorithms that will allow us to speak to computers or get our smartphones to translate Mandarin into English, but he isn't very keen on the idea that the robots of the future will exist primarily to serve humanity. Instead, he believes... Machine intelligence will soon not just match that of humans, but outstrip it. Designing and building heat-resistant robots that can get much closer to the sun's energy sources than the thin-skinned Homo sapiens, and eventually colonize asteroid belts across the Milky Way with self-replicating robot factories. And Schmudberger is the person who is trying to build their brains. As we lower ourselves onto a pair of beanbags after his talk, Schmerberger. <clears throat> yeah. He explains that in a laboratory in Luego in the Swiss Alps, his company, Ninescence, is already developing systems that function much like babies, settling themselves little experiments in order to understand how the world works. True AI, he calls it, explains that in, a, yeah, okay, um, develops symptoms of. Um, okay. True AI, as he calls it. The only problem is that they are still too slow. About a billion neural connections compared with about 100 billion in the human cortex. But we have a trend whereby our computers are getting 10 times faster every five years. And unless that trend breaks, it will only take 25 years until we have a recurrent neural network comparable with that of a human brain. We aren't that many years away from an animal-like intelligence, like that of a crow or a capuchin monkey. How many years exactly? I think years is a better measure than decades, but I wouldn't want to tie myself down to four or seven. When I ask how he can be so confident about his timetable, he launches the hyperdrive. Suddenly, we are jumping from the Big Bang to the Neolithic Revolution, from the invention of gunpowder to the World Wide Web. Major events in the history of the universe. Schmerdenberger. Sorry, says, seem to be happening at an exponentially accelerating interval, each landmark coming around a quarter of the time of the previous. 
you study the pattern, it looks like it's due to converge around the year 2050. In the year 2050, time won't stop, but we will have AI who are more intelligent than we are, and we'll see little point in getting stuck into our little bit of the biosphere. They want to move history to the next level and march out to where the resources are. In a couple of million years, they'll have colonized the Milky Way. He describes this point of convergence as omega, a term first coined by Telhard de Chardin, a French priest, Jesuit priest, born in 1888. He says he likes the omega because it sounds a bit like, oh my God. Schmidt <clears throat> status as the godfather of machine intelligence is not entirely undisputed. For a computer scientist, he can sometimes sound surprisingly unscientific. During his talk in Berlin, there were audible groans from the back of the audience. When he outlined how robots would eventually leave Earth behind and enjoy themselves, exploring the universe, a Brazilian neuroscientist interrupted, Is that what you're saying? There's an algorithm for fun? You're destroying the scientific method in front of all of these people. It's horrible. When asked about those reactions, he has that pitying look again. My theses have been controversial for decades, so I'm used to these standard arguments. But a lot of neuroscientists have no idea what's happening in the world of AI. But even with the, in the AI community, he has his detractors. When I mentioned his name to people working on artificial intelligence, several said his work was undoubtedly influential in getting more so, but that he has a bit of a chip on his shoulder. Many felt his optimism about the rate of technological process was unfounded and possibly dangerous. Far from being the true seer of the robot future, one suggested, he was pushing artificial intelligence to a destiny similar to that of the Segway, a product whose advent was hyped up as a technological revolution akin to the invention of the PC and ended up as a slapstick prop in Paul Blart Mall Cop. To understand why uh, Schmidberger yo-yos between profit and laughing stock, one is to dive deeper into his CV. Born in Munich in 1963, he became interested in robotics during puberty after picking up rocks and wrecks full of popular science books and science fiction novels from the nearby library. Olaf Stapleton, Starmaker, E.T.A. Hoffman, Sandman, and the novels of Stanson Law Lem were particular favorites. His great hero, my wonderful idol, he says, was Albert Einstein. At some point I realized I could have even more influence if I built something that is smarter than myself or even smarter than Einstein. He embarked on a degree in mathematics and computer science at Munich's Technical University, which handed him a professorship at the age of 30. In 1997, he and one of his students, uh, Sepp Hortcharter, <clears throat> wrote a paper that proposed a method for how artificial neural networks computer systems that mimic the brain of humans could be boosted with a memory function by adding loops that interpreted patterns or words or images in the light of previously obtained information. They called it long short-term memory. At that time, AI was going through a prolonged winter. Technology failed to live up to the first wave of hype about artificial intelligence and funding was hard to come by. In the 1960s, the hope was that machines could be coded top down to understand the world and all its complexity. If there is a new buzz now, it is around a seemingly simpler idea that machines can be filled with an algorithm that is relatively basic, but enables them to gradually learn bottom up how complex the world really is. In 1970, no, I'm sorry, 1987, 
His paper on LSTM was rejected by MIT, but it now looks like one of the key concepts behind the new wave of interest in deep learning. In 2015, Google announced it had managed to improve the error rate of its voice recognition software by almost 15 per 50%, I'm sorry, using LSTM. It's the system that powers Amazon's Alexa and Apple. And Apple announced last year that it is using LSTM to improve the iPhone. If he had had his way, the concept would get even more recognition. In a scathing 2015 article, he complained that the Canadian trio of computer scientists hailed in Silicon Valley as the superstars of AI. Jeffrey Hinton, Jan Luchan, and Yohuga Benigo cite each other heavily, but failed to credit the pioneers of the field. During his talk in Berlin and our interview, he repeats emphatically, at regular intervals, like a jingle caching through your Spotify stream, that the current buzz around computer learning is old hat and LSTM got there many years earlier. He is quick to talk down the importance of Silicon Valley, which he feels is dominated by cutthroat competition that it produces less value for the money than European institutes. One possibility that presents itself from listening to him talk about the future of robotics is that his relentless techno-utopianism is simply a strategy to make sure he doesn't end up as the Sixto Rodriguez of AI, influential but overlooked, while the Silicon Valley Dillons go down the Hall of Fame. And relentless it is. Given his interest in sci-fi, he's never worried that robots will enslave and rule over us because they, as they become self-aware. He shakes his head. We won't be enslaved, at the very least, because we're badly suited as slaves. Someone who just build robots that are far superior to us. Um, he dismisses the Matrix, which imprisoned humans to use to power AI. That was the most idiotic plot of all time. Why would you use human bioenergy to power robots when a power station that keeps them alive produces so much more energy? But in that case, won't robots see it as more efficient to wipe out humanity altogether? Like all scientists, highly intelligent AIs would have a fascination with the origins of life and civilization. But this fascination will dwindle after a while, just like most people don't understand the origin of the world nowadays. Generally speaking, our best protection will be their lack of interest in us, because most species' biggest enemy is their own kind. They will pay about as much attention to us as we do to ants. I wonder if this analogy is less comforting than he intends. Surely we sometimes step on ants. Some people even use chemicals to poison entire colonies. Of course, but that only applies to a minute percentage of the global ant population. And no one seems to have the desire to wipe all ants off the face of the earth. On the contrary, most of us are pleased when we hear there are still more ants on the planet than humans, and most of them are in the Brazilian jungle somewhere. We may be much smarter than the ants, but the overall weight of humans on this planet is still comparable to the overall weight of ant all ants. He cites, citing a recently disputed claim by Harvard professor Edmund O. Wilson. Let's forget about sci-fi, say. What about more immediate concerns like robotization creating mass unemployment? In a recent article in Nature magazine, AI researcher uh, Katie Crawford and cyber law professor Ryan Kahlo warned that the new wave of excitement about intelligent design was creating dangerous blind spots when it came to the social knock-on effects of replacing humans with robots. Again, he's not, un not unduly concerned. The dawn of the robot future was clear to him when he fathered two daughters at the start of the millennium, he said. What advice do I give them? I tell them, your papa thinks everything will be great, even if there may be ups and downs. Just be prepared to constantly do something new. Be prepared to learn how to learn. Homo Liddens has always had a talent for inventing jobs of the non-existent kind. The vast majority of the population is already doing luxury jobs like yours and mine, he said, nodding towards my notepad. 
It is easy to predict what kind of jobs will disappear, but it's difficult to predict which new jobs will be created. I would have thought in the 1980s that 30 years later there would be people making millions as a professional video gamer or YouTube star. Even highly respectable jobs in the medical profession will be affected. In 2012, robots started winning competitions when it came to screening cancer with deep neural networks. Does that mean doctors will lose their jobs? Of course not. It just means that the same doctor will treat 10 times as many patients in the same time he used to treat one. Many people will gain cheap access to medical research. Human lives will be saved and lengthened. Countries with many robots per capita, such as Japan, Germany, Korea, Switzerland, he proposes cheerfully, have relatively low unemployment rates. I try to suggest that a truck driver in his 50s who has never heard of JavaScript may not quite share his optimism, but it's difficult to talk about the concerns of generations, not just individuals, when arguing with someone who thinks an Omega leaps. Whatever you try to drill into his opinion about the visions of the robot future, you encounter at its core a simple scenario. When two beings have a conflict of interest, he says, they have two ways to resolve it, either by collaboration or through competition. Every time we encounter such a fork in the road in our conversation, collaboration wins out. When I ask him whether the robots of the future, on top of being curious and playful, will also be able to fall in love, he agrees, because love is obviously an extreme form of collaboration. The love life of robots will be polyamorous rather than monogamous. There will be all sorts of relationships between robots. They will be able to share parts of their minds, which humans currently can't, or only if they decide to dedicate a lot of time to each other. There will be fusions of the kind that don't exist among biological organisms. If love really is just an intense form of collaboration, why does it feel so irrational? Why do we feel lust or heartbreak? He doesn't pick up the bait. We've already got pain sensors, so robots hurt themselves when they bump into something. And we'll work out the lust thing eventually. In the end, they amount to the same thing. What if one company in Apple or Google builds up a monopoly stronghold over the super smart robots that run the world in the future? He thinks that kind of dystopia, as evoked in David Egger's novel The Circle, is extremely unlikely. Here, too, collaboration will triumph. The central algorithm for intelligence is incredibly short. The algorithm that allows systems to self-improve is perhaps 10 lines of pseudocode. What we are missing at the moment is perhaps just another five lines. Maybe we will develop those 10 lines in my little company. But in these times, when even Swiss banking secrecy is nearing its end, it wouldn't stay there. It would be leaked. Maybe some unknown man somewhere in India will come up with the code and make it accessible to everyone. If that sounds a little Pollyanna-ish, it's because his own experience, the initial rejection of LSTM and pervading distrust of cutthroat Silicon Valley, must have taught him that competition can create losers as well as winners. As disarming as his optimism can be on a personal level, I would feel a lot more comfortable with the idea of the most advanced beings of the future being midwifed by him if you were willing to articulate that doubt. He ends our conversation on an apologetic note. I'm sorry you're talking to such a teenager, but I've been saying the same things since the 70s and 80s. The only difference is that people are now starting to take me seriously. Uh huh. Eccentric is the word. Yeah. Eccentric? Um, I don't know that eccentric even covers it, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, ha he is not well, quite well known. Um, and yeah, he's just one of these people who he's just overly optimistic about just about everything. Um, you know, he 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 can only think in positives, basically, uh, which uh, yeah has issues. Um, you think it? Um, 
on my funny comment for the story, which I always seems to enter my head, is somebody coming home and, Mom, the toaster's been bothering the fridge again. <laughs> <laughs> the whole, you know, love and lust. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I found reading that profoundly disturbing. Um, yeah. There will be good things and there will be bad things, and that holds view of the tr- that holds true of the future, no matter how you look at it. I've said myself, I think AI is going to be a real boon for people who've had diseases, um, for people who have dementia, for people who have mental disorders. This is going to be great for people like you and I. I don't know that we're going to do so well with something sharing our brain space. Although I think we'll be dead by the time that happens. So. Yeah. I'm all about that. If, if I'm still alive, I'll be very surprised. And a, a computer that can actually, yeah, I mean, I have trouble keeping up with my own brain. Uh, don't know what I wrote, yeah. how uh, how any I would manage. Um, yeah, <laughs> I don't either. Um, so you know what I thought was fascinating, um, and this is just a weird little aside. Long player lighthouse. Does anybody know what that is? Uh, it sounds familiar. Uh, if you type in Long Player Lighthouse into Google, it'll take you to a link where you can listen to singing bowls. And this singing bowl concerto that you're listening was composed to last a thousand years and to be played by machines. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I it's, know that one. it's yeah. AI that's playing this. It, it is really I amazing stuff. I have on occasion used that as a joke quest on live radio shows oh can you play this (laughs) they wouldn't they would have very little interest in it but the idea that this is meant to last a thousand years is is pretty interesting and they've been broadcasting this since what 1993 somewhere and yeah. yeah and um you know long player lighthouse so if you're interested in what computers playing singing bowls sounds like that's it for you there are other uh, yeah, versions, shall we say. Yeah. I'm sure. Of I'm just incredibly saying. long pieces of music. Yes. Um, <laughs> I just thought that was interesting because we were talking about AI. Margo, are you here? Okay. She's okay. hiding from the AIs. <laughs> uh, or something. All right. Okay. Um... I think this is a good one. Don't worry. Driverless cars are learning from Grand Theft Auto. (laughs) If you've ever played those games, that should not fucking reassure you. In the race to the autonomous revolution, developers have realized there aren't enough hours in a day to clock real-world miles needed to teach cars how to drive themselves, which is why Grand Theft Auto V is in the mix. Blockbuster video game is one of the simulation platforms researchers and engineers increasingly rely on to test and train the machines being primed to take control of the family stand. Companies from Ford Motor Company to Alphabet Incorporated may boast about putting no-hand models on the market in three years, but there's still a lot to learn about drilling algorithms to respond when, say, a mattress falls off a truck on the freeway. If automakers and tech enterprises want to make their deadline, they have to hurry up. The test cars tricked out with lasers, sensors, and cameras being put through the paces on tracks and public roads can't do it on their own. 
simulators never run out of gas, and the ones at Waymo can model driving more than 3 million miles in a single day. Just relying on data from the roads is not practical, says David Bichette, who leads the simulation effort in San Jose, California, for NEO, a startup aiming to introduce an autonomous electric car in the U.S. in 2020. With simulation, you can run the same scenario over and over again, infinite times, and then test it again. As improbable as it may seem to the layperson, hyper-realistic video games are able to generate data that's very close to what artificial intelligent agents can glean on the road. AI software has been playing around with games from Super Mario Brothers to Angry Birds for a while now, tackling problems in control environments and learning through trial and error. Last year, scientists from Desmond University of Technology in Germany and Intel Labs developed a way to pull visual information from Grand Theft Auto V. Now some researchers are relying uh, driving algorithms from GTAV software that's been tweaked for use in the burgeoning self-driving sector. The latest franchise from publisher Rockstar Games is just about as good as reality. With 262 types of vehicles, more than a thousand different unpredictable pedestrians and animals, 14 weather conditions, countless bridges, traffic signals, tunnels, and intersections, the hoodlums heist and accumulated corpses aren't crucial components. The idea isn't that the highways and byways of fictional city of Los Santos would ever be a substitute for bona fide asphalt, but the game is richest visual environment that we could extend extract data from, said Alan Kornhauser. Kornhauser, that's really his name. A Princeton University professor of operations, research, and fractal engineering who advises the Princeton autonomous vehicle engineering team. Waymo uses its simulators to create a confounding motoring situation for every variation engineers can think of, having three cars changing lanes at the same time at an assortment of speeds and directions, for instance. What's learned visually is applied physically, and problems encountered on the road are studied in simulation. Or all the stupid mistakes motorists regularly make. <clears throat> the human brain is far superior to a computer in perceiving and reacting to the unexpected, from a pothole to an instruction zone to a toddler chasing a ball into the street. That's a great challenge for all the companies competing to be first in the autonomous space. How to make onboard systems better than people at driving and make driving safer. A looming question is what state and federal safety regulators would demand as proof an autonomous car should be given a license to roam. Hundreds of billions of miles may have to be racked up one way or another. The authorities will probably accept a combination of real and replicated, but rule spelling out requirements have yet to be written. Gail Pratt, chief executive officer of the Toyota Institute, told the House Energy and Commerce Subcommittee in February that the simulation should be an acceptable equivalent to real-world testing with follow-up validation. That's the road developers are increasingly traveling. You're going along in your car, suddenly it stops, opens the door, and drops a baseball bat on your lap. <laughs> Go get the bitches. What? I, I mean, it's, it's, it's not just me. It sounds fucking ridiculous, right? No. Actually, it doesn't. I um, know, but... I've been following some of these projects, and they, they, they've used other simulators in the past. Another simulator that's popular, apparently, is... Um, Euro Truck Simulator. Okay. And American Truck Simulator. Because uh, well, yeah, I mean, they, they, would have they to. simulate road space in yeah. real world road space in a game. Uh, not I know, but. Not highly detailed modeling, but for early testing, they, they use those sort of games. Uh, and I get that. I just, you know, I mean, 
the fact that AI has figured out how to beat Go, yeah, that still blows my mind. I am glad all this AI isn't all like meshed together, learning at the same time the same things. I'm glad it's specialized. Uh, that that's one thing I can say about it. It's specialized, well, and that's a really good thing. That, that that partly is, yeah, that's how it's got to work, because right, all the intelligence we know of mm -hmm. as a species so far right. is specialized. Yep. Different people have different specializations. Different animals have different specializations. This is just how nature works. Now, AI eventually will go past that. But for the stuff we're building at the minute, yeah, it's kind of got to follow the model nature set. Um, well, Because yeah, that's but... the only comparison it's got. <laughs> right, but I mean, I, I think we're going to have problems... The brain, the world, and reality are chaotic systems, right? We kind of agree on that, right? Yes. Chaos. No. There's kind of there. There is some chaos involved in this. I don't know. Yeah, but how quantum and chaos can... mathematics are already right, but fairly they're well almost, known. But they're almost too precise. Do you know what I mean? No, they're There's not. No... <laughs> you haven't Here... you haven't listened to chaos mathematics guys argue, uh... <laughs> right? But what I'm saying is, there's an uncertainty principle. Yes. In everything, right? I don't know. I, I don't know. I just think. I just think... Hi, Margot. Hi. Hi. I just think that that's going. It's going to cause problems later on. Um saying that yeah you have to model their brains after our brains without the neural networking you would not have the processing speed we have now that's a given but i don't know i think what i find disturbing is they're now creating artificial intelligence neural networks turning them loose and say teach yourself well it's not quite like that but yeah I but you, you you know what i mean yeah. Um, just I don't know. I I think the key to making all this work is like I said last last time we talked about this subject. You have to treat it like a child, and yeah. you have people assuming that it, it's not a child. It's a fully formed adult. No, it's not. It is nowhere near fully formed. God no, knows it, when it, it'll be fully it needs, formed. It needs guidance. That, that, it that's... does what we agreed on I, I mm -hmm. was like it's all about guiding how you teach it yes. not what you teach it how you teach it well i mean we already know there are ai systems in use by the police and they are racially biased you know there's there's an inherent bias that we build into our machines so that's kind of when i say we're going to get into trouble with having it learn just from us that's kind of also <clears> what i mean you know what I mean? It's going to pick up our. Well, yeah, that's why I said the last time we should we shouldn't tell it what it needs to learn. We just need to keep an eye on what it's learning. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> and obviously you don't leave it down to one or two people. You have like a whole panel of diversity who can go. Yeah. Hey, that's wrong. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm yeah. sitting here going, hell no. 
<laughs> what the actual fuck? <laughs> the hell out of my brain because I'll be in jail. And uh, I can drive Mario Kart and does that count? <laughs> they might use that. I mean, they said they would. Well, honestly, that's how they're training a lot of the, the AI now for, for problem solving. It's game theory. Yeah. But you can't teach game theory without teaching games. games. Like, yeah. I, I, I can't teach you. I can tell you the prisoner's dilemma, but I can't teach it to you without us playing a game that involves, like, the prisoner's dilemma. Right? Then you're going to yeah. understand it. Um, so it's kind of like that. I just, I on Margot, if it makes you feel any better, you know, if if they put an AI in my brain, it'll probably end up in a corner crying. Uh, <laughs> See, I would be incarcerated. There would be a lot of dead bodies, and <laughs> it it just wouldn't be a pretty thing. Yeah, we, I mean, we jo have... John talks to me without being in my brain and ends up <laughs> probably wanting to go into a corner and cry. Um, yeah, not so much. Some of the but... stuff I've got in my head. I mean, yeah. We all, we all have dark corners. You know? Excuse me, I'm excuse not... me. No corners in my head. Okay. All right. So you have a dark in little yurt. In dimensional fold space. You have a dark space. little yeah. yurt there. Okay. All right. So you have a TARDIS and it's bigger on the inside. Uh, I don't have that. I have like dark little corners that are they're, they're kind of frightening. I don't really want anything in there learning from me. Do you know what I mean? I don't. Yeah, I've yeah. spent decades forming my diminished capacity, um, and uh, yeah, <laughs> it, 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 that it, way. <laughs> it, it could not be a pretty thing for some people. <laughs> you know, I just I find this stuff fascinating because it's here. It it is here. It's yeah. here right now. Well, I mean, I've it, been I've been reading about AI and robotics since I was mm -hmm. at university first time round. Because it was tech that I was at university for, and I've yeah. I've not ever stopped reading about it. So yeah, it's interesting stuff. Yeah. It is. I mean, one I of the just... reasons why I went to the university I went to was because they were doing a lot of work on AI. <laughs> you know, I, I if you look at AI on the web, it's AI transhumanism different kinds of quantum mechanics they all kind of overlap yes they're all kind of they all kind of lump together it's a really interesting group of people but i see these people <clears throat> who are like recording every conversation with their parents they can build chatbots yes so when they die they can always <laughs> talk to their parents and I see people doing these incredibly crazy things, but they're so touching. Well, yeah, I mean, there, there was a company that does, it'll, I don't think they succeeded. At least I've not heard about them again. But they're taking family videos, and yeah, after a person died, they're getting an AI to scan through all the family videos, and... Basically, you have Great. a gravestone with a little artificial... Hi, yeah. I was such and such. I lived from 19... Yeah, which is yeah. creepy as hell, but that's what they're doing. Um, yeah. So, you know, something for the family to focus on. It's like they're gone, but not forgotten. And we can still have a, small, a very limited chat with them. Um, yeah. But I'm just saying, I mean, people are doing incredibly creepy and touching things 
Um, but it tells you how human we are, yeah. right? Our process is so different than, than a machine's. A machine is, is more precise. I don't know. I, I just find it all, the way it like sticks together, you know, life extension, transhumanism, chaos theory, quantum mechanics, all, all this stuff. It's all the building blocks of the future. And when you look at quantum physics, at least, Jeez. it has its roots. It has its roots so far back. I mean, yes. Plato and Aristotle. Oh, and yeah. it took that many years to get to the point in like the early 18, 1900s when there were men sitting around in their 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 after dinner oh, wear and their studies writing the stuff out. There's something kind of poetic about that. And now we're at this point. The oh, stuff yeah, is I mean, not the... moving along in leaps and bounds. People the have been working on the maths, as you say, for generations. Mm -hmm. I mean, chaos mathematics really didn't take off until Benoit Mandelbrot. Mm -hmm. That's a name people will know because of <laughs> Mandelbrot. The Mandelbrot right. bit. Those beautiful... Uh, images that are produced mm -hmm. on computers and you can zoom in infinitely and you'll keep saying the same image repeated. Yeah. That's Mandelbrot's mathematics. That was some of the first chaos mathematics. And do you know what it was developed for? No. Weather modelling. <laughs> um, his mathematics is why weather forecasts are more accurate than they used to be. Yeah, Thomas knows fractal geometry. Yeah. Ah. That's part of chaos mathematics. Um, fractal and geometry. Fantastic mathematics. Yeah. It's beautiful to look at. Um, oh, yeah. I don't understand any of this stuff from the mathematics part. If we're <laughs> Neither do I, and I did mathematics. So, yeah. We're talking about mathematics, you take that shit and throw it out the window. Well, I this is this. specialist mathematics. I mean, most mathematicians I, don't even. Work I understand with it. some of the theories behind it. Yeah. Right? There's a multiverse, there's a. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's all tied in together, and, and next week um, should be a fun show because I want to talk about the the nature of consciousness. So <laughs> you can imagine what that one's going to be like. Um, it's all an illusion. Well, it's it's <laughs> definitely not centered in your fucking head. Let me put it that way. I think, Margo, you need to pick a story before I just go off again and we just get lost somewhere. Okay, let me see. How about the one about democracy surviving? Okay. Well, democracy. Don't hit me. No, no, it's okay. It's just this is the second. It's it's a really long one, but it's a it's a really well thought out one, and it's it's got its points. Well, Good luck with survived. the names, by the way. Uh -huh. Well, democracy survived big data and artificial intelligence. We'll just stick links up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, editor's note. This article first appeared in uh, Scientific American sister publication as Digital Democrate Stat um, Dacatator. Thomas can probably pronounce those. Yeah. Thomas is not on the line with us, unfortunately. Enlightenment is man's emergence from his self-imposed immaturity. Immaturity is the inability to use one's understanding without guidance from another. Emmanuel Kant, What is Enlightenment, 1784. The digital revolution is in full swing. 
how will it change our world? The amount of data we produce doubles every year. In other words, in 2016, we produced as much data as in the entire history of humankind throughout 2015. Every minute, we produce hundreds of thousands of Google searches and Facebook posts. These contain information that reveals how we think and feel. Soon the things around us, possibly even our clothing, will also be connected with the internet. Stupid, it's stupid. It's estimated that in 10 years time, there will be 150 billion networked measuring sensors, 20 times more than people on earth. Then the amount of data will double every 12 hours. Many companies are already trying to turn this big data into big money. Well, they already have, it's we've become a data market. Everything will become intelligent. So we will not only have smartphones, but also smart homes, smart factories, and smart cities. Should we also expect these developments to result in smart nations and a smarter planet? The field of artificial intelligence is indeed making breathtaking advances. In particular, it is contributing to the automation of data analysis. Artificial intelligence is no longer programmed line by line, but is now capable of learning, thereby continuously developing itself. Recently, Google's DeepMind algorithm taught itself how to win 49 Atari games. Algorithms can now recognize handwritten language and patterns almost as well as humans, and even complete some tasks better than them. They're able to describe the contents of photos and videos. Today, 70% of all financial transactions are performed by algorithms. News content is, in part, automatically generated. This all has radical economic consequences. In the coming 10 to 20 years, around half of today's jobs will be threatened by algorithms. 40% of today's top 500 companies will have vanished in a decade. It can be expected that supercomputers will soon surpass human capabilities in almost all areas, somewhere between 2020 and 2060. Experts are starting to ring alarm bells. Technology visionaries such as Elon Musk, well, we've, we've said we don't think he's a visionary, but whatever, from Tesla Motors, Bill Gates from Microsoft, also someone I'm not fucking fond of, a little evil troll, yeah. and Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak, again, someone else I'm really not fond of, <clears throat> um, yeah. are warning that superintelligence is a serious danger for humanity, possibly even more dangerous than nuclear weapons. Is this alarmism? One thing is clear. The way in which we organize the economy and society will change fundamentally. We're experiencing the largest transformation since the end of the Second World War, after the automation of production and the creation of self-driving cars, the automation of society is next. With this, society is at its crossroads, which promises great opportunities, but also considerable risks. If we take the wrong decisions, it could threaten our greatest historical achievements. In the 1940s, American mathematician Norbert Wiener, Norbert Wiener, 1894 to 1964, invented cybernetics. According to him, the behavior of systems could be controlled by the means of suitable feedbacks. Very soon, some researchers imagined controlling the economy and society according to this basic principle, but the necessary technology was not available at that time. Today, Singapore is seen as a perfect example of a data-controlled society. What started as a program to protect its citizens from terrorism, and that's not sound familiar, has ended up influencing economic and immigration policy, property market, and school curricula. China is taking a similar route. Recently, Badu, the Chinese equivalent of Google, invited the military to take part in the China Brand Project. 
involves running so-called deep learning algorithms over the search engine data collected by its users. Beyond this, a kind of social control is also planned. According to recent reports, every Chinese citizen receives a so-called citizen score, which will determine under what conditions they may get loans, jobs, or travel visas to other countries. This kind of individual monitoring would include people's internet surfing and the behavior of their social contacts. With consumers facing increasingly frequent credit checks and some online shops experimenting with personalized prices, we're on a similar path in the West. It is also increasingly clear that we are all in the focus of institutional surveillance. This was revealed in 2015 when details of British Secret Service's Karma Police program became public, showing the comprehensive screening of everyone's internet use. Is Big Brother now becoming a reality? Program Society, Program Citizens. Everything started quite harmlessly. Search engines and recommendation platforms began to offer us personalized suggestions for products and services. This information is based on personal metadata that has been gathered from previous searches, purchases, and mobility behavior, as well as social interactions. Hang on while I take a sip, I'm really sorry. <clears throat> while officially the identity of the user is protected, it can in practice be inferred quite easily. Today, algorithms know pretty well what we do what we think, and how we feel, possibly even better than our friends and family or even ourselves. Often the recommendations we are offered fit so well that the resulting decisions feel as if they were our own, even though they are actually not our decisions. In fact, we are being remotely controlled and we're more successful in this manner. The more that is known about us, the less likely our choices are to be free and not predetermined by others. But it won't stop here. Some software platforms are moving towards, quote, persuasive computing, end quote. In the future, using sophisticated manipulation technologies, these platforms will be able to steer us through entire courses of action, be it for the execution of complex work processes or to generate free content for internet platforms from which corporations earn billions. The trend goes from programming computers to programming people. These technologies are also becoming increasingly popular in the world of politics. Under the label of nudging, and on a massive scale, governments are trying to steer citizens towards healthier or more environmentally friendly behavior by means of a nudge, a modern form of paternalism. A new caring government is not only interested in what we do, but it also wants to make sure that we do the things it considers to be right. The magic phrase is big nudging, which is the combination of big data with nudging. To many, this appears to be a sort of digital scepter that allows one to govern the masses efficiently without having to involve citizens in democratic processes. Could this overcome vested investments and optimize the course of the world? If so, then citizens would be governed by a data-empowered wise king, who would be able to produce desired economic and social outcomes, almost as if with a magical digital wand. Pre-programmed catastrophes. But one look at the relevant scientific literature shows that attempts to control opinions in the sense of their optimization, are doomed to fail because of the complexity of the problem. The dynamics of the formation of opinions are full of surprises. Nobody knows how the digital magic wand, that is to say the manipulative nudging technique, should best be used. What would have been the right or wrong measure is often apparent only afterwards. During the German swine flu epidemic in 2009, for example, everyone was encouraged to go for vaccinations. However, we now know that a certain percentage of those who received the immunization were affected by an unusual disease, narcolepsy. Fortunately, there were not more people who chose to get vaccinated. 
Another example is the recent attempt of health insurance providers to encourage increased exercise by handing out smart fitness bracelets with the aim of reducing the amount of cardiovascular disease in the population. But in the end, this might result in more hip operations. In a complex system such as society, an improvement in one area almost inevitably leads to deterioration in another. Thus, large-scale interventionists can sometimes prove to be massive mistakes. Regardless of this, criminals, terrorists, and extremists will try and manage and take control of this digital magic wand sooner or later, perhaps even without us noticing. Most all the companies and institutions have already been hacked, even the Pentagon, the White House, and the NSA. A further problem arises when adequate transparency and democratic control are lacking. The erosion of the system from the inside. Search algorithms and recommendation systems can be influenced. Companies can bid on certain combinations of words to gain more favorable results. Governments are probably able to influence <coughs> the outcomes too. During elections, they might nudge undecided voters towards supporting them, a manipulation that would be hard to detect. Therefore, whoever controls this technology can win elections by nudging themselves to power. This problem is exasperated by the fact that in many countries, a single search engine or social media platform has a predominant market share. It could decisively influence the public and interfere with these countries remotely. Even though the European Court of Justice judgment made on 6 October 2015 limits unrestrained export of European data, the underlying problem still has not been resolved within Europe, and even less so elsewhere. What undesirable side effects can we expect? In order for manipulation to stand noticed, it takes a so-called resonance effect, suggestions that are sufficiently customized to each individual. In this way, local trends are gradually reinforced by repetition, leading all the way to the filter bubble or the echo chamber effect. In the end, all you might get in your own is your own opinions reflected back at you. This causes social polarization, resulting in formation of separate groups that can no longer understand each other and find themselves increasingly at conflict with one another. In this way, personalized information can unintentionally destroy social cohesion. This can be currently observed in America's politics, where Democrats and Republicans are increasingly drifting apart, so that political compromises become almost impossible. This is a result of fragmentation, possibly even a disintegration of society. Owing to the resonance, owing to the resonance effect, a large-scale change of opinion in society can only be produced slowly and gradually. The effects occur with a time lag, but also they cannot be easily undone. It is possible, for example, if resentment against minorities or migrants get out of control, too much national sentiment can cause discrimination, extremism, and conflict. Perhaps even more significant is the fact that manipulative methods change the way we make our decisions. They override the otherwise relevant cultural and social cues, at least temporarily. In summary, the large-scale use of manipulative methods could cause serious societal damage, including brutalization of behavior in the digital world. Who should be held responsible for this? Legal issues. This raises legal issues, given, huge, given the huge fines against tobacco companies, banks, IT, and automotive companies over the past few years should not be ignored. But which laws, if any, might be violated? First of all, it's clear and manipulative technologies restrict the freedom of choice. If the remote control of our behavior worked perfectly, we would essentially be digital slaves because we would not only execute decisions that were actually made by others before. Of course, manipulative technologies are only partially effective. Nonetheless, our freedom is disappearing slowly, but surely, in fact, slowly enough, there's been little resistance from the population so far. The insights of the great Enlightener, Immanuel Kant, seem to be highly relevant here. 
Among other things, he noted that a state that attempts to determine the happiness of its citizens is a despot. However, the right to individual self-development can only be exercised by those who have control over their lives, which presupposes informational self-determination. This is about nothing less than our most important constitutional rights. A democracy cannot work well unless those rights are respected. If they're constrained, this undermines our constitution, our society, and the state. As manipulative technologies such as big nudging function in a similar way to personalized advertising, other laws are affected too. Advertisements must be marketed as such and must not be misleading. They're also not allowed to utilize certain psychological tricks such as subliminal stimuli. This is why it's prohibited to show a soft drink in a film for a split second because then the advertising is not consciously perceptible, while it may still have a subconscious effect. Furthermore, the current widespread collection and processing of personal data is certainly not comparable with the applicable data protection laws in European countries and elsewhere. Finally, the legality of personalized pricing is questionable because it could be a misuse of insider information. Other relevant aspects are possible breaches of the principles of equality and non-determination and of competition laws such as free market access to price transparency are no longer guaranteed. The situation is comparable to businesses that sell products for cheaper in other countries, but try to prevent purchases via these countries. Such cases have resulted in high punitive fines in the past. Personalized advertising and pricing cannot be compared to classical advertising or discount coupons, as the latter are non-specific and also do not invade our privacy with the goal to take advantage of our psychological weaknesses and knock out our critical thinking. Furthermore, let us not forget that in the academic world, even harmless decision experiments are considered to be experiments with human subjects, which would have to be approved by a publicly accountable ethics committee. In each and every case, persons concerned are required to give their informed consent. In contrast, a single click to confirm that we agree with the contents of a 100-page terms abuse agreement, which is the case these days for many information platforms, is woefully inadequate. Nonetheless, experiments with manipulative technologies such as nudging are performed with millions of people without informing them, without transparency, and without ethical constraints. Even large social networks like Facebook or online dating platforms such as OkCupid have already publicly admitted to undertaking these kinds of social experiments. If we want to avoid irresponsible research on humans and society, just think of the involvement of psychologists in the torture scandals of the recent past. And we urgently need to impose high standards, especially scientific quality criteria, and a code of conduct similar to the Hippocratic Oath. Has our thinking, our freedom, our democracy been hacked? Let's suppose there were a super intelligent machine with godlike knowledge and superhuman abilities. Would we follow its instructions? It seems possible. But if we did that, then the warnings expressed by Musk, Gates, Wozniak, Stephen Hawking, and others would become true. Computers would have taken control of the world. We must be clear that a superintelligence could also make mistakes, lie, pursue selfish interests, or be manipulated. Above all, it cannot be compared with the distributed collective intelligence of the entire population. The idea of replacing the thinking of all the citizens by a computer cluster would be absurd, because that would dramatically lower the diversity and quality of the solutions achievable. Is it already clear that the problems of the world have not decreased despite recent flood data and the use of personalized information? On the contrary. World peace is fragile. Long-term change in the climate could lead to the greatest loss of species since the extinction of dinosaurs. We are far from having the overcome the financial crisis and its impact on the economy. Cybercrime is estimated to cause an annual loss of $3 trillion. 
states and terrorists are preparing for cyber warfare. In a rapidly changing superintelligence, can never make perfect decisions. Systemic complexity is increasing faster than data volumes, which are growing faster than the ability to process them, and data transfer rates are limiting. This results in degrading local knowledge and facts, which are important to reach good solutions. Distributed local control methods are often superior to centralized approaches, especially in complex systems whose behaviors are highly variable, hardly predictable, and not capable of real-time optimization. It's already true for traffic control in cities, but even more so for social and economic systems of highly networked, globalized world. Furthermore, there is danger that the manipulative decisions by powerful algorithms undermine the basis of collective intelligence, which can flexibly adapt to the challenges of our complex world. For collective intelligence to work, information searches and decision-making by individuals must occur and develop uh, independently. If our judgment and decisions are preempted by algorithms, however, this truly leads to brainwashing of the people. Intelligent beings are downgraded to mere receivers of commands who automatically respond to stimuli. In other words, personalized information builds a filter bubble around us, a kind of digital prison for our thinking. How could creativity and thinking out of the box be possible under such conditions? Ultimately, a centralized system of technocratic behavior and social control using superintelligent information system would result in a new form of dictatorship. Therefore, the top-down controlled society, which comes under the banner of liberal paternalism, is in principle doing nothing else than a totalitarian regime with a rosy cover. In fact, big nudging aims to bring the actions of many people into line and to manipulate their perspectives and decisions. This puts it in the area of propaganda and the targeted incapacitation of the citizen by the behavioral control. We expect the consequences will be fatal in the long term, especially when considering the above men mentioned effect for undermining culture. I need to drink again this good morning. Thanks, Margo. <clears throat> A better digital society is possible. Despite fierce global competition, democracies would be wise not to cast the achievements of many centuries overboard. In contrast to other political regimes, Western democracies have the advantage that they have already learned to deal with pluralism and diversity. Now they just have to learn how to capitalize on more. In the future, those countries will lead that research, lead that reach, a healthy balance between business, government, and citizens. This requires network thinking and the establishment of an information, innovation, product, and service ecosystem. In order to work well, it is not only important to create opportunities for participation, but also to support diversity. Because there is no way to determine the best goal function, to really optimize the gross national product per capita or sustainability, power, peace, happiness, or life expectancy. Often enough, what would have been better is only known after the fact. By allowing the pursuit of various different goals, a pluralistic society is better able to cope with a range of unexpected challenges to come. Centralized top-down control is a solution of the past, which is only suitable for systems of low complexity. Therefore, federal systems and majority decisions are solutions of the present. With economic and cultural evolution, social complexity will continue to rise. Therefore, the solution for the future is collective intelligence. This means that citizen science, crowdsourcing online discussion platforms are eminently important new approaches to making more knowledge, ideas, and resources available. Collective intelligence requires a high degree of diversity. This is, however, being redirected by today's personalized information systems, which reinforce trends. Sociodiversity is as important as biodiversity. It fuels not only collective intelligence and innovation, but also resilience, the ability of our society to cope with unexpected shocks. 
Reducing sociodiversity also reduces the functionality and performance of an economy and a society. This is the reason why totalitarian regimes often end up in conflict with their neighbors. Typical long-term consequences are political instability and war, as have occurred time and time again throughout history. Pluralism and participation are therefore not to be seen primarily as consequences to citizens, but as functional prerequisites for a thriving, complex, modern society. In summary, it can be said that we are now at a crossroads. Big data, artificial intelligence, cybernetics, and behavior economics are shaping our society, for better or worse. If such widespread technologies are not compatible with our society's core values, sooner or later they will cause extensive damage. They could lead to an automated society with totalitarian features. In its worst case, a centralized artificial intelligence would control what we know, what we think, and how we act. We are at a historic moment where we have to decide on the right path, the path that allows us all to benefit from the digital revolution. Therefore, we urge to adhere to the following fundamental principles. One, to increasingly decentralize the function of information systems. Two, to support trans informational self-determination and participation. Three, to improve transparency in order to agree and achieve greater trust. Four, to reduce the distortion of, of and pollution of information. Five, to enable user-controlled information filters. Six, to support social and economic diversity. Seven, to improve interoperability and collaborative opportunities. Eight, create digital assistance and coordination tools. Nine, to support collective intelligence and 10, to promote a responsible behavior of citizens in the digital world to digital literacy and enlightenment. Following this digital agenda, we would all benefit from the fruits of the digital revolution, the economy, government, and citizens alike. What are we waiting for? Strategy for the big age, um, for the digital age. Big data and artificial intelligence are undoubtedly important innovations. They have enormous potential to catalyze economic value and social progress from personalized healthcare to sustainable cities. It is totally unacceptable, however, to use these technologies to incapacitate the citizen. Big nudging and citizen scores, and citizen scores abuse centrally collected personal data for behavioral control in ways that are totalitarian in nature. This is not only incompatible with human rights and democratic principles, but also inappropriate to manage modern, innovative societies. In order to solve the genuine problems of the world, far better approaches in the fields of information and risk management are required. The research area of responsible innovation and the initiative Data for Humanity provide guidance as to how big data and artificial intelligence should be used for the benefit of society. What can we do now? First, even in these times of digital revolution, the basic rights of citizens should be protected as they are fundamental prerequisite of a modern functional democratic society. This requires the creation of a new social contract based on the trust and cooperation which sees citizens as and customers, not as obstacles or resources to be exploited, but as partners. For this, the state would have to provide an appropriate regulatory framework, which ensures that technologies are designed and used in ways that are comparable with democracy. They would have to guarantee informational self-determination, not only theoretically, but also practically, because it is a precondition for us to lead our lives in a self-determined and responsible manner. There should also be a right to get a copy of personal data collected about us. It should be regulated by law that this information must be automatically sent in a standardized format to a personal data store through which individuals could manage the use of their data, potentially supported by particular AI digital assistants. 
To ensure greater privacy and prevent discrimination, the unauthorized use of data would have to be punishable by law. Individuals would then decide who can use their information, for what purpose, and for how long. And furthermore, appropriate measures should be taken to ensure that data is securely stored and exchanged. Sophisticated reputation systems, considering multiple criteria, could help increase the quality of information on which our decisions are based. If data filters and recommendation and search algorithms would be selectable and configurable by the user, we could look at multiple problems from multiple perspectives and will be less prone to manipulation by distorted information. Okay. <laughs> Huh. Oh, God. <clears throat> in order to effectively and responsibly exercise the rights, citizens must have an understanding of these technologies, but also what uses are legitimate. This is why there is all the more need for science, industry, politics, and educational institutions to make this knowledge widely available. Second, a participatory platform is needed that makes it easier for people to become self-employed, set up their own projects, find collaboration partners, market products and services worldwide, manage resources and pay tax and social security contributions. To complement this, towns and even villages can set up centers for emerging digital communities, such as Fab Labs. Ideas can be jointly developed and tested for free. I see the open and innovative approach found in these centers, massive collaborative innovation could be promoted. Particular kinds of competition could provide additional incentives for innovation, help increase public visibility and generate momentum for a participatory digital society. It could be particularly useful in mobilizing civil society to ensure local contributions to global problem solving. Uh, okay. Thirdly, building a digital nervous system run by the citizens could open up new opportunities of the Internet of Things for everyone and provide real-time data measurements available to all. If we want to reuse resources in a more sustainable way and slow down climate change, we need to measure the positive and negative side effects of our interactions with others and our environment. By using appropriate feedback loops, systems could be organized in such a way that they achieve the desired outcomes by means of self-organization. For this to succeed, we would need various inventive exchange systems available to all economic, political, and social innovators. This could create entirely new markets and therefore the basis for new prosperity. Unleashing the virtually unlimited potential of the digital economy would be greatly promoted by a pluralistic financial system for example, functionally differentiated currencies and new regulations for the compensation for inventions. To better cope with the complexity and diversity of our future world and to turn it into an advantage, we will require personalized digital assistance. Um, okay. um, however, in order for us to contain, retain control of our lives, these networks should be controlled in a distributed way. In particular, one would also have to log in and log out as desired. A democratic platform. Wikipedia of cultures could help coordinate various activities in a highly diverse world to make them comparable with each other. It would make mostly implicit success uh, principles of the world's cultures explicit so they could be combined in new ways. A cultural genome project like this would also be a kind of peace project because it would raise public awareness for the value of socio-cultural diversity. Local companies long known that cultural diversity and multidisciplinary teams are more successful than homogeneous ones. However, the framework needed to efficiently collate knowledge and ideas from lots of people in order to create collective intelligence is still missing in many places. To change this, the provision of online deliberation platforms would be highly useful. They could also create the framework needed to realize an upgraded digital democracy with greater participatory opportunities for citizens. This can be important because many of the problems facing the world today 
can only be managed with contributions from civil society. Fuck, Margo, I hate you. <laughs> My tongue hurts. <laughs> well, there's there's a lot in there. Um, uh, just a little bit, yeah. One, governments are already doing nudging. A mm -hmm. lot. Right, I mean, for instance, in the UK, there is actually a group that makes recommendations to Parliament called the Nudge Unit. I know. <laughs> um, other governments Snowden, have similar. Christopher Snowden wrote about it quite yeah. widely. It's very funny to me um, that the ideas that concern me about technology that make me feel luddish the solution is to throw more technology at it. I yeah. don't, I don't, I don't, we're not going to be it's able to solve intuitive. Yes. Exactly. We're not really going to be able to solve the problems we got in here with the same thinking we had before. Oh, and you know, do, do you know where they learned an awful lot about nudging from? Uh, Ash? No, computer gaming. Come <laughs> Course. If you play a role-playing game, computer game, mm -hmm. they create a lot of them create the illusion that you have all this choice and everything you do is going to affect the game. But of course, what's actually happening is the game is channel channeling you along certain predetermined courses. Right. So you think you're making the decision, but you're, but not. you're not. You're learning to do what you're so, told. You've met, you mention it quite a lot. It all comes down to game theory. Um, mm -hmm. It does. Now, the, the joy I have with this in my life, yeah, it talks about coming back with suggestions for, pro, for products and, oh, maybe you should try this. Yeah. My whole life, one of these systems has never come back with a suggestion that I've not well, gone. Why the hell is it telling me I want that? You know, I started blocking <clears throat> I started blocking a lot of this shit. Before I knew it was like a danger to me. I, I started oh, I, blocking I, it because I, I just most of I was it like it I doesn't work. <laughs> stand it. I couldn't fucking stand it. I, it. It's it saw the kind of music I listened to. And yeah. yet it would recommend shit like Paul Abdul. I'm like, really? The Cure made you think Paul Abdul was a good musical choice for me. Get the fuck out of here. Well, so you, you imagine what the music suggestion sites... Um, oh, I can't even... The, I don't they, even they, they, know. they almost melt when I've been on. Because, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll bring up my music player, which does not have all my music in it. Oh, and it's why I've got a music player and don't use one of these online uh, right. things. Artists, just artists, I have 760 different artists listed in my music player. Well, I mean, here's the thing. Human beings are amazingly complex creatures, right? Yes. And... And no at the same time, funnily enough. Yes, and no. Yeah. No, we're creatures of habit. We're like cats. You can't really fuck with our shit too much without making us uncomfortable, but... That being said, our brains are wired a certain way. And this is true across almost all of society. When you tell somebody not to do something, whether they're three, 
or whether they're 30 or whether they're 60 or 90, they're like, fuck you. And the reason Except the like, Japanese, maybe. But... Well, yeah, but, you know, they, they also have, you know... Tentacle uh, porn and all sorts of other weird well, things. Yeah. Well, I was going to say they their used panty <laughs> machines just kind of make me sick. So you know, they also have that going on. Um, yeah. You know, and the the people there have no interest in marrying or or having families or any of that. You know, it, it's it's hard for me to believe that this is the kind of society their government wanted to have. Because now they have to have robots to care for the old people. Yeah. You know, you've got their prime minister standing up on TV yelling and screaming that too many people are living too long and the old people are just such a burden they should kill themselves. I mean, that guy, how is he still finance minister? Because <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's I mean, Japan. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, what the fuck? I mean, this guy has outbursts on the same level as Donald Trump and he still has a job. Yeah. I'm saying, you know, Japan is amazingly polite as a culture and a society, uh -huh. and this guy loses his shit on a regular basis. I don't, I still don't understand how he has it done. <laughs> Possibly because they job. find him amusing. Have you thought about that? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I mean, governments are always trying to control their populations. It's just now companies are trying to do the same. Yeah. So and, there's now overlapping interest. Um, right. And the it's technocracy. I mean, technocracy yes. is an idea that goes back to the 1940s. I mean, you had some really intense people yeah. in, involved. Well, in this these article ideas, did get it right. A lot of this stuff was originally come up with by Mr. Kant. He talked an awful lot about social structure. Um, yeah. No, well, I mean, but they still can't get it right because they don't understand the complexity of the human brain. Well, hu humans are... We are... Our brains are kind of logical, but... Not. But not, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It's, we it's... are learning machines, but... We're it, less like it's situational, shall we say. We're, we're less like a machine than you think. And it's like I've said, I mean... And, and pro programming talked... people, it, it's That's it's being done. Work. It's being done. All, no, 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 no. It's being done all, all day, every day, everywhere That's... that has TV broadcasting going on. You realize that's why I don't watch TV, right? Well, yeah, that's a lot of people's excuse for not watching TV. But, well, it's not an excuse, but for me, it's it's a very real thing. I mean, I watch I, television, but I, yeah, I don't watch all the crap. No, but I only watch I, what I want to watch. Exactly, but I I can see older people turn on TV for company, and they leave it running all the time, so they're hearing all this shit day in day out, and it's the same horrible story they've heard a million times before. And do you know what their answer is? The government needs to do something. <laughs> no, they fucking don't. You know what they need to do? Back the fuck off. Um, well, no, it's but, people. People have the misconception. The government needs to do something. No, no, no. No, they don't. You need to do something. Yeah, and people don't want to. They don't want to get no. involved. People they are. Don't... 
very passive point of view. Well, They're just like, I'm the majority of people, I'm sorry to say, away. are inherently lazy. Uh, they will I take think, the easiest course of action. I think life is hard enough. Yeah. Does that make any sense? I think life is hard enough, and it's not that people don't want to get involved. I just think it's just it's hard. It's hard well, to get up. It's hard to I, get I, What I've just said, through. I'm not saying it's a negative. It's how we've evolved. Mm-hmm. Why yeah. go and fight when you can just go over here and watch Do TV? <laughs> it's, it's it's a survival mechanism. It's protecting yeah. ourselves, basically. Right, but... Humans are very good at finding the easiest solution, which isn't well, the same as the best solution, which yeah. is why our society is so screwed up. Um, <laughs> that's how I we've just, done it all the way through history. Um, right, but knowing that's how people behave, you would think the idea of saying, well, we'll make it even easier, we're just going to have all this predictive technology read you and we're going to have it forced into yeah, a situation. Yeah, we, we are the spotter in the works for that technology. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because, right, they'll nudge people into, right, we want them to behave this way. And it, it will happen because people are pack animals and set up systems on group behavior, etc. But yet again, there's the easiest result factor in human nature. And it's an animal nature as well. It's not just us. And what they wanted to originally create doesn't happen because the group find an even easier way... Well, I'm just saying I think it's ridiculous. I mean, the government and the corporations want to be your parent. No, that's that's okay. I've had quite enough of that. And I think I've talked about the movie Obsolete a bunch of times. Mm -hmm. But it really is worth checking out. Um, I I really wish there were good... um, film to recommend for people on technocracy there isn't um there are a lot of films online if you go to um tragedyandhope.com they've done some interviews with uh some people that have written about technocracy which are quite good and they they examine the history of it um from the people all this shit first came from in the 40s to the technocracy incorporation that's in Canada. I believe it's in Calgary somewhere now. Um, The idea for this sort of society has been ongoing since the 40s. And the problems with big data, big data manipulation, artificial intelligence, um, is the humanity at the core. It, it just is. Yeah. The people who came up with the idea fucked in the head. I these were the same people who shared a lot of the same idea with the eugenicists, and yes. they thought they could create a society that was resource based and everything was clean and green. Everybody got along, and you got rid of the undesirable. 
undesirables created in my country. Right? I don't think I want them gone. Yeah. I'll say, I mean, we we are fantastic at coming up with all these wild and wonderful ways to run society and control things and everything. And the spanner in the works is the same people. (laughs) It's like people mess it up. (laughs) So, yeah. They do, you know. So there's never, I mean, socialism, fantastic idea. If, If you look at the original ideas, you know, it's, yeah, everybody's equal, blah, 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 blah. Then you give it to people to actually do, they fuck it up. (laughs) you know, honestly... Or, or, well, that was, you know, his big things, you know. It's like, yeah, socialism was a good idea. Unfortunately, (laughs) it's... Well, I mean, it's not a... It's not... It's actually... The idea is to get post-scarcity, right? Yeah. I am economically... I understand where we're going with this resource-based economy, this sharing economy. I understand where we're going. Getting there means dethroning these rich fuckers who keep pushing these same ideas. Yeah. You know what I mean? They're the people that push all this shit. All the technology people keep pushing this AI, this AI, neural lace, this, that, this, that. Just let it be. You know, because every time they do shit, the law of unintended consequences kicks in and it winds up fucking things up worse. But the technocrats are are by far, I think, some of the scariest people. Um, Yeah. (laughs) They are some some whacked out people and a lot of them influenced a lot of these same people that were educated at universities where these ideas came to life. Yeah. Um, so, and, and it's funny how it always comes back to the same core group of people. I'm not sure what I think about that, but the idea that these people are pouring the money into this AI technology scares me. I like AI. I like the fact that when I type something in, to a computer with as fucked up as my spelling is, the computer will correct it. I think very well, but my brain works so quickly I can't always catch my fucked up words. That's great. That is helpful. I like that. Stop trying to force choices on me. Let me be. That's kind of, I think, what it all comes down to. I don't know if these projects ever succeed if any future generations will have that thought leave it alone let me be you ask somebody my niece's age for instance uh what what do you think of the tsa oh they're doing a great job (coughs) fucking really they're doing a great job they have never caught a terrorist except maybe the fucking shoe bomber or the fucking underwear bomber and even then, I think that's questionable. They've never really stopped an attack. They make you throw bottled water into, you know. Yeah, they'll. They Trash make you throw hands. liquids out, but will happily let the off-duty policeman on the plane with a gun, with a gun. Um, in his hand know, luggage. <laughs> it's it's just ridiculous. Yeah. All of this shit 
doesn't seem like it's tied in together, but it really is. And I mean, it's hard for me to sit here and say that, you know, but there is, all of this is tied in together. You can see it. There's a bigger picture behind all this stuff. Margo, are you back or no? No. No. Okay. So she's talking about storm gore. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> well, it was nice of Margo to pop in and suggest stories. Uh, I guess. Three minutes wow. left. Basically. Three minutes left. Yeah. Okay. So, since we've talked this to death and we have three minutes left, I will tell you, you can get the replay of this show later on tonight at uh, antimania.com. Or you can go to Apple Podcasts and you can search Auntie Nanny's podcast and you can subscribe through that feature as well. Uh, it'll also be up at some point when Kevin uploads it on SoundCloud with the other three or four episodes that we're behind on that syndication. So it will be there in one form or another for you when you're ready. And uh, I guess that's it. So, you know, next week, be prepared for the nature of reality. That should be fun. <laughs> <laughs> Something I've been uh, struggling my whole life with. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You think it's in your head. Not so much. No. Interesting. Interesting. I don't think it's in my head. No, you're one of the few people that don't, though. Oh, I hear, mm. you know, I work things out in my head or this is how things are in my brain. No. Not at all. How very medieval. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what you think you know is probably not accurate. Okay, so um, we will see you next week. Have a great week. Um, I would say Muppets, but I don't even think there's time for that. Oh, yeah, there is. Okay. Play me some Muppets and Ned. Why do we always come here? I guess we'll never know. It's like a kind of torture to have to watch the show. Why spend hours searching for in-stock ammunition when you can use AmmoSeek.com? AmmoSeek.com is a search engine for finding ammunition, reloading components, magazines, and guns for more than 300 calibers at more than 60 online retailers. AmmoSeek.com only shows items that are in stock and readily available for shipping. You can search by caliber, grains, manufacturer, and more. The results are displayed by cost per round, so you are able to get the very best pricing on your ammunition of choice. Find ammunition at the best prices, fast. Amoseek.com. Um, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Uh, see you next week, Thomas. <laughs>